Yeah, we have a one of Michael's indoor cats. Kind of um, when John's family moved in, uh, his new apprentice, the, the the cat like was not having it, and so she moved into the garden. And for like huh. the first like half a year, we were like terrified of like her like scraping on the bark or anything. But she's oh, been really yeah. good, thankfully. Huh? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a matter of like putting in the time and having an animal that can exist in the space. You know, co- right. sort of co- coexist peacefully. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah I definitely see it, but. It's super good to have you up, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, how's life as a bonsai professional? It's pretty crazy. It's yeah. um, it's really fun to travel all over the country and, and meet lots of different people um, and see so many different perspectives in bonsai. So right. I'm, I'm really enjoying that. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a little bit of an adjustment getting uh, used to life on the road and balancing yeah. that with with coming home and working. But it's it's going great so far. Nice, nice. Um, and so when you uh, when you come back, are you still working out of Michael's garden or do you have a space that you're working on? What does that look like? Yeah, so I, I'm currently living in Michael's garden uh-huh. um, and he's really graciously letting me stay there and let my, my trees stay there for a little bit. Cool. Um, my parents and I are building a, 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 a nursery and a home uh, just a mile away, uh, a little saw, bit closer I to saw the this. river. Yeah, I saw your, I get your dad's Facebook posts. Uh-huh. And so, so I'm always like, oh, very cool. Yeah, like, yeah. Going, going deep. Yeah, we're really excited. So we just kind of finished up the site prep. We had a, a beautiful mature oak that we unfortunately had to take down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, structurally compromised and right. it was going to shade out the entire garden. Mm-hmm. Um but I saved, uh, I had a, a mill come out and take it. So we're going to get some nice lumber out of it. Cool. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Use it, use it for some, something in, right. in the garden or something. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I think, uh, Austin's going to build us a tokenoma and, and we'll, we'll use that as, as the base, Beautiful. Uh, which will be nice and use it to make a few bonsai benches. Cool. Very cool. So. That kind of, uh, I mean, I've never lived in a place where the lumber was so, uh, to to the scale where it really became valuable in mm-hmm. terms of being able to actually make something, but yeah. um, there was a big old um, big leaf maple at the base of my driveway here, mm-hmm. and when they widened the road, they had to cut it down, and and we got the trunk of it. That's awesome. And a big massive burl. Yeah. So we've been drying it for like three years up top. That's neat. Yeah. I'm gonna try to use it for something. I don't yeah. know what. No plans yet. No. Nah, I mean, I would like to. Uh, I would like to create just like an open kitchen with mm-hmm. it with some beautiful open shelving yeah, and just yeah. show off the maple because it's yeah. incredibly stunning. Yeah, I bet that's gorgeous. Yeah, and they, and they, they milled it really thick, so it's three inches. Okay. And it's had a, lo- uh, a very minimal amount of movement as it's dried. So, I mm-hmm. mean, it, they can be big and beefy and wow. they, and it's really stunning. Yeah. I mean, that kind of stuff is awesome. Yeah, I, I, I've gotten obsessed with it a little bit. It's, it's, yeah. it's really fun. Yeah. Uh, the, the oak that we took down, it, it's, it was maybe like ninety years old or something like that, and uh, it's, it, it left like a, a five foot stump wide, and so rather than just have that, you know, cleared down to the ground, I was like, this would be an awesome pedestal. So I think I'm oh, gonna put yeah. one of my big beech or, or another big bonsai just on top of that and have it be a feature in the garden. Yeah. Cool. What's that so, beach name? What's that? The name of the beach? Um, th- I've heard different names. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Homer. They call Homer. Homer is one. Uh, <laughs> Steve Arland was out and he, I think he, he, Steve Arland was out like four years ago and helped me repot it, uh, at Michael's and he named it, uh, uh, Iggy, uh, which is Yggdrasil, the, the, the Norse tree of life. Nice. So it's, it's had a few names. I haven't given one myself. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to work on it Homer. a few more, <laughs> a few more years before that. Yeah. But, uh, do you know why it was called Homer? I don't. I have no idea. Yeah. I'd love to get the backstory on it though. I bet that tree does have some history. That's a spectacular tree. Yeah, I was I was really fortunate to get it. Yeah. Um 
it was apparently it just sat like up there for seven or eight years just sitting there and I, the first time i was there i bought it within like two minutes yeah because i was just like holy cow like, yeah this is, this is amazing uh it was john sold it to one of his uh, john john muth sold right. it to one of his uh customers like right when he first opened and so it was like a little pencil size you know just little stick and they, they planted it uh in their garden and just kind of Worked on it as a bonsai, but grew it in the ground right. for about 30 years. And then it was dug up and, and, and taken back to Bonsai Northwest. So it was pretty epic. And then Michael did the initial kind of cut back on it when it came mm -hmm. out. So That's cool. Yeah. That's really cool. It's a special tree. Yeah. Yeah. There are those trees that kind of have the, the backstory and, and it's a it's a powerful tree. It has a lot of presence when, yeah. you're, when you're in front of it. I mean, it's big. It's imposing. I yeah. that had to be uh, quite the experience to repot it. Yeah, it, it takes about four people to, to yeah, lift it out if I we bet. don't have any you know, hoist or anything like that. Um, but it, it's it's pretty fun. Yeah, uh, the last repotting we did, it was in terrible. It was still in like the field soil or whatnot. And so last time we repotted it, we did it at the Japanese garden in the courtyard there, and we we got some <laughs> of the the, the the Japanese gardeners helping us. So that was a little, a little chaotic, but it was really fun. Was yeah. it? Uh, so were you literally out on the pavers in the middle of that? Yeah, we we space? laid out a tarp on the pavers cool. and we're you know doing the second half of the bear route and oh was, that's pretty fun. cool yeah that's very cool yeah how neat. uh how is i was just up at the japanese garden and the trees are they off display in the winter time yeah um just to for for protection sure. they get a little colder up there yeah um, usually the display runs from april through november something uh -huh. like that uh, is, is that, has that been pretty fun to interact with the new garden and be a yeah, part of that? Yeah. It's, it's, that? it's been really, really fun. Um, I'm mostly involved in the, the teaching side of things. So I give a, almost a once a week talk up there just to whoever's passing through. Sure. And that's, that's been really kind of challenging for me because talking to people who don't know anything about bonsai is like a totally different skill set than right. talking to bonsai people. Right. Um, but that's been really rewarding for me. I, huh. I really enjoy that. Um, and it's crazy the, the amount of attention it gets. I mean, they get close to a million people a year that move through that garden. And so, you know, all those people get exposed to bonsai, you know, when, when the, the display is up. Yeah. Um, and when I give my talks, it's not like it's, you know, heavily, you know, advertised or anything. And so, you know, in, in, in the summer when the garden is really busy, you can have 120 people just, you know, congregating and they're just like super fascinated and right. into it. So that's right. been really fun. Interesting. Now, <clears throat> What what got you into bonsai? When did you, how old were you and, and how'd you get into it? Yeah, I got into bonsai uh, in middle school, I think it was. Where um, did you grow up? Uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. okay. And um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was fun. My, my dad and I were going to a Japanese festival at the Missouri Botanical Garden um, and uh and we saw bonsai. The, the local club had their their show at the festival, and and uh, Roy Nagatoshi was there giving a demonstration, mm. um, and it was really fun. I was really captivated by it. My dad grew up, um, he grew up gardening, and one time we had like two hundred orchids in the house, and oh wow! And so he's been a plant person for a while, but nothing really stuck with me. Right. And so uh, when when we saw bonsai, and you know, I was so captivated by it, I think he got a little excited, uh, which was fun. Um, so, so your dad also practices bonsai, correct? Yeah, I kind of got him into it in uh -huh. that way. And so, uh, how it was was we we were at the Japanese, uh, we were at the the Missouri Botanical Garden. Um, he had um, found a tree that that was pretty fun, and uh, there was one of the local vendors, Cast Bonsai, was there, right? And 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 they were selling some trees, and there was this really nice little Kingsville boxwood that was you know collected out of someone's yard in Washington D.C. or something. Yeah. And uh, we both, you know, 
kept walking up and looking at the tree and then walking away. And it was like $400, which is like kind of a lot for mm-hmm. like your first tree. Mm-hmm. And so he he eventually pulled the trigger and he said, you know, if, if I buy this for you, the, the deal is uh, you have to join the club and go to the meetings for one entire year to learn how to take care of it. And I was just this young little kid. And so I was like, okay, great. You know, I want the tree. And and so I started going to the club and, you know, all the, you know, older people in the club see like a, a middle schooler walk in and they just kind of flock. <laughs> blood blood <laughs> yeah, in the water. Exactly. And and so that's kind of how I got started. That's and, cool. And, and working with the club was just a really great experience in the early years. Man. Uh, and I get it too. Like when somebody young and enthusiastic does show interest in bonsai, it's just yeah. like, yes. Yeah. It's, yes. it's like really rewarding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. That's a victory. Yeah. Wow. Now, now did, so you started at, at, at this young age and, um, and then did you practice all the way through like your collegiate? Cause you, you went to music school, correct? Yeah, I, I, I went to undergrad at a small liberal arts school in Missouri, and then I went off to a conservatory at Yale oh, and wow. studied music there. Um, and so I would return, my, my undergrad was just three hours away from St. Louis. And so I'd drive home. Um, we, we had gotten into a study group with Michael, my, my teacher, mm-hmm. um, when, uh, when I was in high school. And so I, I throughout high school and, and, and uh, through college, I'd drive home, you know, for the three times a year that he'd come in. And, and right. that was really rewarding. And, uh, and how long into it did your dad start really getting like where he was actually like, maybe I'll get a tree or, yeah. or, or did you do it together on we, this we, boxwood? We, and... we kind of did it together. So, oh, so cool. I got the boxwood. He started, you know, I was in middle school, so I couldn't drive to the meeting. So he had to drive me to the meetings. And then eventually he just got as into it as I was nice. and, and became the vice president of the club, then the president. And, and cool. so it, it was, it was really downhill from there. <laughs> oh. Yale going to, what was going to Yale like? It was it was an incredible experience. Was it? I was really fortunate to get in. Where where um, is? I'm sorry, this is going to sound ignorant. Where is Yale? Yale's in New Haven, Connecticut. It is, which okay. is like halfway between New York City and Boston. Gotcha. Uh, so, how far from both? Uh, it's about a two hour uh, train ride to to New York. Without traffic, it's probably only like seventy miles. Wow. So it's it's not far, but and how far from Boston? Uh, about the same. Oh, about wow. an hour and a half. Cool. So, yeah, it was it was really really fun. Uh, Yale was super interesting because it was just this like microcosm of creativity. Right. You, you'd see like, you know, everybody there was like a genius. Right. I was like the dumbest person there, uh, which was great. I love that. Um, <laughs> but it was it was crazy because everybody there, whether they were like in the neuroscience program or or an engineer or in the forestry school, everybody was like an artist in some way. Like whether they were a musician or or they did visual arts, like it was a really artistic place. Interesting. And so you know, I got to uh, uh, I lived uh, not too far from the Yale Art Gallery, and I you know they had you know just some this amazing collection, and so I got to you know really dive deep into art when I was there, and that cool. was really fun. And had you historically had an interest in art or was that something that came about when you went there yeah i think when you when you study music classical music you know you you develop an appreciation for a lot of the the european fine art yeah that makes sense and and so i i kind of had it but i didn't really really know about it until i i started you know exploring when i was there very cool and and so you go to yale and and your instrument was the flute correct yeah i was a flutist okay all right and you go through, I'm assuming that's got to be incredibly rigorous. 
Yeah, the the program was pretty intense because uh, about, gosh, probably 12, 13 years ago now, they got an anonymous like $200 million donation uh, to provide free tuition for the School of Music. Wow. And so um, that made it really competitive. And so you'd have people who, you know, were maybe going to go to Juilliard and it's like, well, I, the same teacher teaches at Yale and I can get yeah. in there for free. And so it, it uh because of the, the the donation, they kept the studios really small, so it got really competitive. Um, but it was it was really fun. Hmm. How many hours a day were you having to put into working at that in order to be to stay at that level right. and be there? Yeah, the classical music at that level, it's almost you're almost like an athlete, you know, yeah. with like these little micro muscles and and whatnot. And you're you're practicing to keep yourself, you know, up to up to shape. You're, you're practicing maybe four hours a day at minimum on like an off day. <laughs> so it, it's, it can be a lot. And playing an instrument like that at that level, do you have to take time off? Like I would assume that just like any other sport, you like parts of your body are going to fatigue. It's not, you're not yeah. always going to be able to function at the highest level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some instruments uh, y- you can take time off pretty regularly. Like, you know, flute wasn't too bad, but a lot of brass instruments, you know, the embouchures can get real, real messed up. The right. chops can get lost pretty fast. Yeah. Um, I probably never took enough time off when, when I was doing it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it can be an issue for a lot of people. So, I mean, were, did you love working with the flute and music or how did, you know, because you, you went through that level and, and then, mm-hmm. and then it seems like you transitioned to bonsai. How did that go? How'd that happen? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love music, but I, I didn't love performing. And I think I, I think I just stuck with it because I was really good at it, and and it was, it it just kind of made sense, um, and so I, I just kept you know following that same path without kind of really realizing that I, I enjoyed it, right, and so um, yeah, it's uh, bonsai kind of happened. Um, I, I was I was doing all these really high profile concerts, you know, I'd play at Lincoln Center or whatnot. And, you know, during these concerts I'm thinking about bonsai. And I just knew like <laughs> this wasn't gonna be sustainable long term. Yeah. And so I, I was actually at Lincoln Center once performing and I get, I called Michael because I was like I, I'm not. I'm not having this. Like this isn't working for me. Right. And so, what are my options? Because I just, you know, didn't really know what to do. Um, and and that just kind of progressed into the apprenticeship with them. Cool. Uh, so my last concert was uh, part of the New York Philharmonic uh, New Music Festival. Um, and I was like, okay, this is a good good way to go out. And yeah. I'll just you know cl- close it up. And <laughs> it's been <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's been great. But <sighs> I'm on to other things. So Dude. it was it was almost a complete severance. Do, do, is any part of your, um, training as a musician at that level geared around giving you the tools to be able to deal with the kind of pressure and nerves of performances of that scale? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's, it's funny because when I, when I started doing bonsai presentations, I'd get really nervous. Right. I was like, wait, this is 40 people. You know, I've, I played at these major concert venues in front of thousands of people you know, why am I you know, nervous for this? And I kind of realized, well, now I'm talking. I'm not doing right. know, something that I was super comfortable at. And so I, I think, you know, it, it, it certainly does teach you, you know, how to be able to flip the switch and perform yeah. uh, when you need to. Um, but it was it was a little different you know, moving to bonsai and talking and doing something else on stage. Yeah. I still get nervous. I yeah. Get, I, yeah. I get nervous. I get nervous for every live stream. Really? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I still, and I really enjoy it. You know, like it kind of raises your level of awareness, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, magic can happen in that yeah. in that circumstance. 
some some people don't really care for it and then some people just tolerate it right yeah right. yeah but i get i get very nervous going yeah. to the trophy in belgium mm-hmm. i really get a lot of yeah, nerves I'm for sure. that i think i think we have a little issue in in the bonsai world when like i i think we tend to make make it a performance art for for the professionals like yeah. get up on stage and create a bonsai and that's not really you know the yeah. work that we do and in, <laughs> in private in our studios and so uh, I think bonsai is a performance art, but it's it's a performance art for the trees, and, and I think sometimes yeah. we we can forget that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I mean I I think there's a I think that there's like multiple ways to look at the value of a demonstration, mm-hmm. and I think um, some of the most powerful and impactful experiences I've had that created my bonsai passion was really being uh, made aware of what is possible. Yeah, you know, and I think there are a lot of demonstrations that aren't aren't handled super responsibly, or maybe are more about the person than the tree. But I also yeah. think, I also think it's an amazing device to be able to introduce people to the art of bonsai yeah, and sure. and what is because like I remember looking at bonsai today's and the old translated Kimbone articles there and uh-huh. seeing. I mean, my first experience seeing Mr. Kamara's work, I was just like, that. that's what I'm doing with my life, right? right. you know? And so it's like, there is, I, I, I get the gray line and sort of the, particularly when you talk about the long-term approach to bonsai and the areas mm-hmm. of refinement that a demonstration is never going to show. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is like the the lifestyle of bonsai, I think, uh, as much as anything. Right. Trying right. to strive for that, the level yeah. of, of refinement. Yeah, and I've I've been really struggling with demonstrations, particularly because you know my focus is deciduous, mm-hmm. and so how do you get on stage and create a deciduous bonsai? It's it's a little uh, it's a little challenging, you know. And you almost yeah. need a time machine to to do it. Um, I'm doing something pretty fun with the Portland Club with BSOP. Uh, we're doing a 20 year demonstration, and so I have a tree that you know has a pretty good trunk but has no branching, and so I'm bringing it back about once a year, and and, and we're kind of demonstration that's documenting cool. it, you know, throughout. Yeah. The process so i think that will be pretty fun but it's, it's it brings up you know the, the interesting point that you know it's really hard to work with deciduous material on these demonstrations yeah yeah makes sense yeah, it's challenging makes sense i mean i think you see it a lot with tropicals too yeah as, yeah. as its own genre sure. and as a demonstration material pretty challenging right yeah and i mean i don't think that demonstrations i don't think that demonstrations satisfy uh, every every niche, and I definitely again see the the issue with them. I still I still do find inspiration, like seeing somebody right. really talented work on a tree can be really inspiring. Yeah, for sure. sure. But um, in terms of like uh, and and with that, you know, there was the the hedge the hedge pruning like uh, big internet explosion of mm-hmm. you know, and the approach of refined deciduous bones. I I was so curious to talk to you about that subject and your thoughts on those two aspects. Not like trying to be controversial or anything, yeah, but I yeah, sure. I've thought about it a lot. Uh-huh. Kind of watching the reaction that happened to that, and I'm I'm curious what you thought about that. Yeah, I, I listened to your podcast with Walter, and I think you brought up a good point. You know, when you do a, a you know horticultural technique, it produces a certain effect, mm. and uh, the technique of hedge pruning produces an effect that I, is is not really my taste. Yeah, uh, I, I'm more into the um, very refined, um, finely ramified. Uh, exquisitely delicate uh, ramification. I don't think you really get that with hedge pruning. Mm-hmm. I do think it's a effective way to get a lot of ramification quickly. Um, but I don't think it's, it's, 
you know, when, when you hedge prune, uh, you're, you're letting randomness decide where the tree is going to regrow. And if you just take the time to, you know, cut every single branch, uh, if it's an alternating leaf species like a beech or a hornbeam, you can really program how the tree is going to regrow. And, and you can do it in a way that's very organic. So it takes a lot longer. But I think the result is, is quite a bit better down yeah. the road, at yeah. least for what I'm looking for. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where this this is kind of where my mind went over the course of time thinking about it. Like, it is really fascinating to think at this point in time, I think like to say that there's a right or wrong in bonsai is, is a compromising position, but like yeah. there's also some truth to there is a right or wrong yeah. in bonsai as a, as a terminology because I right. think it now is becoming a descriptor of an approach. Mm-hmm. And if you choose to deviate from that, yeah, the only way we bonsai? have... Yeah, I mean, we, the only way we have to describe it is with this word that helps people understand mm-hmm. the general concept of what's being done. But when I when I thought about that, I thought maybe Walter isn't striving for ramification as it is uh, mm-hmm. pursued in Japan or right. in you know that model. Because, I mean, there are some pinging models that have some pretty radically different mm-hmm. ramified style of training and whatnot. And yeah. And that, and for whatever reason, in pinging, it's like, well, that's pinging, and I guess I don't right. know enough about it to say if it's good or bad, you know? Right, it's right, like, exactly. Uh, and, and so I started thinking about that, and just thinking, I wonder, I wonder if if you don't abide by those, by some of the standards that are sort of set and practiced mm-hmm. in in the art of bonsai as it has come to evolve in Japan, do do you still call it bonsai? And I, I mean, it's like a little bit of a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> but but it does feel like at some point there is going to have to be an addressing of that subject because it, it becomes two different things. Yeah, I think so. They both it's, have aesthetically pleasing appearances. I mean, I yeah. just think they're different, you know, to, yeah, say, different. to say that to say that we and can... And they both have aesthetics. Uh, yeah. And I think mm-hmm. to say that we can all function on the same understanding that we're all striving for the same thing is, is uh, at some point that stops being correct, you know, because right. people might not be valuing the same aesthetic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I really have learned a lot from looking at Dan Robinson's work. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, it's, I, I almost learn more looking at other other approaches mm-hmm. of, of people's work than I do looking at people who are similar to me just because you can, it really, I think it really kind of sets you firm in your beliefs Yeah, and, and, and strengthens them. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think as far as like for Walter's work for me, it's always been pretty inspiring. Yeah. Uh, in particular, yeah, the way that Walter defines the primary lines and structure of his trees via via pruning. You know, mm-hmm. like whether you agree with his method of seeking ramification or or Bjorn's method or the traditional Japanese method and and you know whatever difference in approach and technique all of those have, you know, yeah. or and Mike Michael as well. I I would assume Michael does he tend to teach and follow Shinji Suzuki's methodology? Yeah, he does. And that methodology to, to put in the words is 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 more of a natural approach. So uh-huh. having a beach look like a beach rather than having a beach kind of all wired out, the branches wired down to kind of look like a, a black pine or, mm-hmm. or classic bonsai shape. Um, and I think that's that's something that's really special and not really talked about a lot uh, with deciduous bonsai is having, you know, kind of more natural looking uh, uh, uh branch structures and using the genetics of the plant to help you get there. So rather than putting a wire on, uh, you know, cutting to a bud that's, you know, facing left that so that you can direct the growth into the direction that you want. And and I I don't think there's a lot of people doing that. Mm -hmm. And, and so when I, when I studied at Michael's and I saw, you know, something, I saw these deciduous, uh, uh, bonsai that didn't look like black pines. I, my, my mind was just blown Mm -hmm. and I was like, wow, this is what I want to do. This is where my passion is. Yeah. Yeah. And 
so do you use any wire or in that approach or like what does that look yeah, like in it, terms of how do you define that line yeah it's i think it's different depending on what, what genus and species you're working on uh-huh. um something like a chinese quince i think needs a little bit more wire than a stewardia for example sure um but i think generally what we do is you know we maybe set use a wire to set a main kind of trunk movement uh maybe set the primary branches but once you kind of have your primary and secondary branches you can really use the genetics of the plant to to build the rest of the tree mm-hmm. and it, it ends up looking a lot more organic than contrived and when you say the genetics of the plant are you just talking about how the back budding occurs or the angles coming yeah, out? like the, what are you what, yeah the directionality of the buds uh-huh. uh, uh pruning in a way that you know you're, you're shaping the branches with the the natural lines of the tree rather than wiring it and, and kind of making it look a little contrived yeah yeah and when you were working at Yale and and working towards that level of music, mm-hmm. was anybody yelling at you or driving you to do that, or was that self-inflicted? <laughs> it, Yale, it was you know, you're at such a high level where you're it's, it's kind of you know you're doing it on your own Nobody, at that point. N- nobody's in. <laughs> but I mean, in the early years, I think there's definitely you know the whip where yeah. you're you're you know getting you know a young person in the shape to yeah. where you know they can excel at a high level. Because I'm just thinking about this and just thinking like um, you, in order to do deciduous in the way that you're discussing, which. I mean, when you see it done well, it's it is really magical. Right. I, I mean, when you see Shinji Suzuki's deciduous work, it, it's truly stunning. And mm-hmm. I think Michael's work has been really inspiring to me yeah. over the course of the past ten years, particularly as they start to accumulate the age and you see the long term accumulation right, of the technique. Right. This that's is, what it's all about. This is special, right? It's yeah. very special. Um, and and I, you know, to have to dig into this observational education to practice deciduous at at that kind of level really seems to have probably the same demand as what it took to become a really outstanding musician yeah, i have I, to believe I, I i think in some regards yes i i don't think i don't think building deciduous trees is is um really challenging in in like a technical kind of way mm-hmm. i think it's just doing the simple tasks correctly for years and years and years that gets you the result so i don't think it's it's like rocket science to build deciduous material but it's, it's just this kind of religious dedication to these very simple techniques applied you know year after year um that that create that beautiful magical product i mean i i think yes and also if you're learning to interpret the different growth habits and branch structures of yeah you can you can definitely the, geek out about you know because you can go right. you can go deep this is a yeah. safe space for you to go yeah. deep here yeah i i mean like when you talk about what makes a good horn beam a ramified horn beam versus a japanese maple Mm-hmm. I would think about those as being two very different branching structures. Yeah, and, you know? and I do too. I mean, there's there's different approaches. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, one of one person that I look up to a lot in the area, Dennis Voitilla, tries yeah. and makes you know all his deciduous trees look like oaks. Yeah, and I think that's a real you know oaks are beautiful to look at. You know, I was driving up here and you know just studying a lot of the beautiful uh, white oaks that we have. You know, on the drive up. Yeah. Um, but what I'm more interested in, you know, a trident maple is a nice upright tree, but yet every trident maple that we see, uh, the branches are wired down. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do, you know, kind of like that, you know, d- distinction, you know, trying to make a trident maple look like a trident rather than mm-hmm. something else. And and where do you, in terms of like a lot of deciduous forms where there there is documentation of some of it? Mm-hmm. But there isn't as much documentation. And because of the, what I would consider to be maybe a lack of longevity or maybe an overabundant harvesting of the species it's hard to get the imagery of a truly ancient form of a, that yeah. deciduous model i don't know how do you yeah, come and, up with that imagery and you know i 
at the rendezvous, you, you were talking uh, about Bob uh, King's uh, Cypress. Yeah. And, and uh, you, you kind of made the point, you know, we can celebrate, you know, bonsai at different life cycles. You mm-hmm. can celebrate a bonsai looking like a nice young tree, a mature tree, an ancient tree, and they all kind of have their different feelings. We don't really s- see many ancient deciduous trees. Right. It's, it's not something that, you know, is, is in our, you know, common lexicon. And, and so, I guess I, I'm not really interested in making the deciduous look ancient, but just a nice kind of mature representation. Uh-huh. You know, something that you would see just driving down the street. Yeah. You know, in Missouri, you know, you drive down uh, 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 Highway 55 and you can see just, you know, these beautiful, in, the, in these, these fields, you just see this beautiful, you know, tree with all the room to grow that it can just, you know, really spread out the branches quite beautifully. Um and they're not terribly ancient. They're not young either. And yeah. I, I like that kind of happy medium. Yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of what I strive for most of the yeah. time. Fascinating. Huh. I think there are, are instances where you do kind of strive for the ancient, you know, like the ume, for example, where uh, ume is the longest lived of all the fruit trees. And so you, you tend to make an ume, you know, kind of look really beaten up through time. And that's one of the things we love about it, the, mm. the deadwood on an ume. Um, but I think from in, in most of the time... I, I think you know, just a nice mature representation is what I'm striving for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting, makes sense. And and do you have as much of a passion? I know Michael practices, um, you know, shtukusa cultivation or or kusumono, whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah. whatever you choose to call right, kind of right. these like yeah. understory plantings. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, do you do you find that to be engaging and interesting as well? Yeah, I, I'm really interested by it. I'm, I'm not gonna you know spend all my time doing it. Yeah. But um, I, I've when I was in I think gosh in undergrad I I, I would um, go work with Young Cho, cool. um, uh, when she was in uh, in uh, Maryland, and, and that was a lot of fun to, to study with her. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoy it. Uh, I think it's a, d- a big part of bonsai, but it's it's not something that I you know really focus on. Yeah, yeah, it's challenging too. Yeah, it's and, and it within is. that model, gosh, there's so much room that you could you know take it. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> Mr. Kamura used to always say, "Shitakusa is way more complex than bonsai." And <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember knocking out one or two pretty major, uh, you know, in my watering or miswatering practices uh-huh. as an apprentice, and just thinking like. Son of a bitch, you know, <laughs> yeah, like this yeah. is nobody's here to tell you how to do this. <laughs> right, right. It's like, a whole different world. <laughs> ah, it's a, and and even and even for him, he wasn't necessarily like guiding. I mean, I do look at the way and really admire the way Shinji Suzuki sets up his place and and mm-hmm. also the way Michael set up his place in terms of just like the thoughtful intention mm-hmm. behind the, the the system that exists inside of that space and the utilization and distribution of the different elements is extremely attractive. Yeah. Uh, the intentionality of it is what I think is so romantic. Yeah. You know, yeah. like and that was one of the main reasons I I wanted to study with Michael. Is yeah. He's he's very, you know, humble and I think he's, you know, provocative, but he does it in such a subtle way uh, someone uh, a music critic was once describing uh, chopin uh the great you know keyboard composer and they said he's his music is guns buried in flowers and huh. i think you know michael's kind of like that he's a very quiet revolutionary flowers. Um, and that's something i really appreciate about him yeah and and was that i mean in terms of your decision to because 
so many Western bonsai practitioners go to Japan right. to study, and you chose to stay in North America. Yeah. What what led to that decision? I, I think it was, you know, I, I realized that staying with, with Michael, staying in North America, I could get kind of more of a liberal arts bonsai education. And, and what I loved about Michael's was uh, it, he works with deciduous and conifers. He works with yamadori and pot-grown trees. He works with uh, some not so good trees and, and some really phenomenal trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, he works with uh, young trees and old trees. You know, we grow chochabai from cuttings, yeah. and so I, I really got a nice, diverse kind of education working there, and, and I, I, that was something that was important to me yeah. uh, before the apprenticeship. How, how long does it take to grow a good chochabai from cutting to like a, a, a legitimately beautiful, potentially right at, at the level of show tree, not a Kokfu winning tree, but maybe like U.S. national, but U.S. national. I, I would say a good representation of Chojubai. How yeah. long does that take? Uh, we uh, Shohin can take about eight years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're fast. Uh, Shohin can take about eight years. A Chuhin, you're looking more at you know maybe 12 to 15 yeah uh it's it's really fast in the in the whole deciduous world of of growing bonsai that's that's pretty quick yeah um michael grows and sells chochabai he he sells maybe four or five a year and and they're getting sold as about 10 year old plants yeah interesting yeah that was uh, you know and the genetics of chochabai are also so important yeah. Too, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, there's, that's, uh, th- this is something that I don't think we talk a lot about in terms of deciduous conversations in right. the Western world is the genetics of the deciduous material. Right, and it's huge. And, and the Japanese have such an advantage of, you know, hundreds of years of selecting and and really narrowing down what works very well. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think it's it's really huge in, in some aspects, like with, when in the genus maple, uh, there's there, there's so m- much variety. You know, you you throw a, a, a Anderson flat full of you know Japanese maple seedlings, and you'll get you know a hundred you know just little subtle differences, yep. and then maybe one that's you know really crazy. Yeah, but. Um, you don't see too much difference within beach, but you know, it's 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 still there. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't talk about genetics enough, I think. Yeah, I mean, this was a big thing when Fujikawa, my senpai, was here, um, over kind of in late November, early December. He was saying, you know, Takayama Fuyo Inonomiya, who's who who does have you know a a, a grand deciduous representation right. as a really uh, a really prominent um, deciduous master. Mm-hmm you know, his genetics for his tridents and, and what that allows him to achieve yeah. is is something that he's been working on for his whole career. Right, yeah, and Tr- it's going to take generations for yep. us to, to get there. Yeah. Um, tridents is especially important. And, and the thing that we don't think about enough, I mean, we always think about leaf size and short internodes and all that's great, mm-hmm. uh, but the directionality of the butts. So when you cut it, uh, um, trident maple is a, a opposite leaf pattern. And so it can grow at a right angle when it regrows. It can right. grow at an acute or it can grow at a, a obtuse and a lot of the genetics i see in the united states they grow at an obtuse angle and so if you're trying to not use a lot of wires on your trees then it, it's, it's going to be difficult just because of the genetic that you have that's fascinating that's fast i've never even thought about that that there would be differentiation in the angle of the bud yeah that makes a lot it's of huge. sense yeah. yeah wow and i mean what about japanese maple because i obviously there's mm-hmm. the subtle nuances but does that same thing exist for japanese maple in terms of angularity and, and yeah yeah definitely uh with japanese maple uh we tend to look more at uh bark fall color um leaves uh, everywhere in between we don't have the crazy uh, it, uh 
bud angles mm-hmm. problems that we have with the tridents, um, but it can still exist. How do you um, how do you take you know like when somebody is developing a Japanese maple that is 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 starting to de- develop a relative degree of refinement across the lower branches because you're able to get those to slow down so much easier and the yeah. apex is still just crushing how do you yeah. slow that down and tighten the inner nodes and create that really yeah. beautiful refined transition in the apex yeah. this is a mystery to me yeah it's it's really tough uh, and we're, we're battling it you know even on old plants really still. um constant it's, it's a constant fight yeah yeah it, it, and and you know you kind of have to alter your approach you know every year um some years maybe you just pinch the top of the the, the tree that you just pinch the crown and you let everything else extend mm. um some years uh repotting it can can uh, help uh, speed up the bottom part mm-hmm. a little bit if you're really controlling the top. I saw a crazy technique in, in uh, Kinbone recently where they, instead of pinch, they just cut the extending butt, they just cut it in half yep. on the really strong parts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I want to experiment with that. When when Fujikawa was here, he, he does a lot more deciduous than Mr. Kimura ever did. And mm. he was saying that they were going in and doing some pretty... I would say extensive defoliation techniques on mm-hmm. really strong Japanese maples, at least in the strongest areas, mm. before the first flush ever fully hardened. And wow. you know, like I say that, and I'm like, ooh, I don't, I don't even yeah. know if it's good to put that out there. Right, right. But, but um, the other thing I think that's really necessary to understand about some practitioners in Japan is the 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 degree that they fertilize. Yeah, it's, to just I'm build sure it's nuts. It, it's crazy, and yeah. I think that's how he probably gets away with that. And I think that's how s- yeah. how some of those really extreme techniques mm-hmm. can become a little bit um, misunderstood in right, the Western right, world. Right. I mean, how do you handle fertilization in your deciduous trees? Because you can be on both sides of the fence. Like I've seen incredible ramification from super aggressive fertilizing, mm-hmm. and I've. And I've also seen incredible ramification from a really subtle approach. Right, it's 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 challenging. Uh, it, it depends on what your goals are. Are we growing a trunk? Are we growing primary branches? Or are we trying to slow the tree down? Um, for the former. Um, I like to use fertilizer is something that we've been kind of playing around with at Michael's the last few years. We've almost stopped using solid fertilizers really? altogether. Yeah. Uh, Cause we find, you know, in Portland is super dry in the summer and we find that the organic fertilizers, they just don't break down. They just kind of shrivel up and, yeah. and you know, in Missouri and I'm sure in Japan was the same way. Uh, you put bio gold on there and it's going to stay, you know, moist, you know, even six hours after you water on, yeah. on the summer day. And, and here they just kind of shrivel up. And so we, we, we found that we were under fertilizing the yard and, and the fertilizer that we were using just, you know, wasn't getting into the yeah. pot. And so we switched to liquid fertilizer, mostly fish and, we just saw a massive difference in the yard. And so most of my fertilizing is just kind of variations on fish emulsion. What kind of differences did you see? We, we saw the, 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 the lushness of the plants really improved. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw nicer extensions um, in, in the color on the plants. It, it, just, it was a really big difference. They were, hung- we, they were hungry, basically. They, they were hungry. And, and I think a lot of it, too, was water because... Um, uh, Portland water comes out of the tap at like eight, five or something yeah. like that. And so we're not quite sure, you know, because we were changing the water and the fertilizer at the same time. But we did an a, a experiment trial with the chochabai and we have like 150, 200 chochabai to play with. So we just kind of divided them up and, and we did uh row society on one batch, mm-hmm. uh, Dynagro, uh, which is a, a inorganic fertilizer on another batch and fish emulsion on another batch. 
And we found that the 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 liquid fertilizers totally overperformed mm-hmm. uh, the 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 row society. And so right away we knew, you know, there's a key in liquids. Uh, and then the fish uh, had it didn't produce as long a growth, but it, it produced pretty even growth uh, with much tighter internodes. The fish did give you tighter internodes. Yeah. Were you given humix also and trace minerals or no? Just straight fish. Just straight fish emulsion. Yeah. So. I mean, that's this has been the secret for a lot of bonsai practitioners for a long time. Yeah. You know, fish emulsion is like this it's, magical yeah. little element. There's a and, lot of really good stuff in it. Yeah. And within fish emulsion, you can really kind of tweak your regimen. Mm-hmm. And so what Ebihara does, famous d- Japanese deciduous artist, I think he was using like a really diluted fish emulsion like every other time he watered. Yeah. Yeah. And, I believe and, it. Hey, Lime, can you hook me and up? And it some really lime? just like. I, I think you know, yeah. really tweaking that yeah. can 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 give you some amazing results. Yeah, I uh, I was trying to think. We we um, and I think it all comes down. Yeah, it's really good. It's good wine. Do you need any more wine, Andrew? I'm good. It's um, delicious. We definitely tried to go more towards the uh, fish emulsion last year. I mean, mm-hmm. fish hydrolysates and some of the things that we've been working on with. Uh, yeah trying to do some soil science stuff and the mm-hmm. compost extracts, all that stuff. That's yeah. been a really interesting exploration. And and I think there is, like, understanding more now the fact that we, the, the bacterial-fungal relationship inside of the container mm-hmm. and recognizing in the Pacific Northwest, at least, I mean, I don't know how watering is for you guys, but watering is watering and trying to understand watering is just an absolute monstrosity of a uh, field of information. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like it's, it's so complex. First thing you learn, last thing you master. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> trying yeah, trying to figure out watering and and stimulating more fungi in a region. Yeah, where we where we do have so much moisture that bacteria just becomes the predominant thing in the container is mm-hmm. tough. You know. Yeah, yeah, it's real challenging. Yeah, and I know I know Michael. Um, you know, from what from what I gather from the articles I've read on his blog, it seems like he um, really utilizes water as a, a gas pedal for some of the pines, like a ponderosa or something, in terms of just not uh, copiously watering them over the spring season yeah. to help with needle reduction. That reminds me of how we handled the white pine in Japan as right. well. And that's, right, and that's where he got that technique yeah. from. Yeah, It's a little you know scary to teach the students, <laughs> don't water your trees to, yeah. to get small needles, but it has a pretty strong effect. And how, I think how, generally how, we overwater rather than underwater. I would say so. Right. I would say so. How, how long do you guys go? Not like you're establishing a precedent or anything, but I'm just trying to get, because like at Mr. Kimura's, Three, four, five days on a white pine. Yeah, yeah, was, sure. Was not an issue. Yeah, in, in May here, when you know the sun starts coming out and we get rain every now and then, we could skip three three days. Yeah, uh, if it's, if the pot's really big, maybe even four. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's really scary. It was as an apprentice, it was one of the scariest things was yeah. was watering the ponderosas and the Rocky Mountain junipers, uh, just because you know we were so careful about it, and I would just be paranoid about not doing it enough. Yeah, and what and why why hold water back on the Rocky Mountain junipers? What was what were you seeing? Yeah, also to keep the growth nice and compact. Yeah, interesting. Um, so I, I've really found with the Rockies, um, because I would say my tendency is definitely to overwater mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Yeah. And I would say with my Rockies, the um, the timing for the pruning and the way that I fertilize has had a major impact on their growth mm. f- for for me and, and the techniques that we apply mm-hmm. and what, what I'm tr- trying to achieve with, with the pruning that we do on them. I, I've really found that um, that if I control fertilization, 
the container also as a constriction device mm -hmm. has helped a lot. And we've yeah. moved some very big, almost uncontrollable Rocky Mountain junipers into smaller pots. Yeah. I, I mean, sometimes almost impossibly small pots. Right. And, and I'm had, sure it really tightens up the growth. It's right? had an immense impact. Wow. Immense. Um, but I can fertilize it right out of it too. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, you can really... They're almost just like an open system for nutrition to come into them, right? Right. Which is fascinating. I would think deciduous would be similar. You you can you can use you can use <coughs> similar techniques with deciduous. Like if you want to s slow a trident down, you just leave it in the pot an extra year, uh -huh. and you, that's a good way to shorten your inner nodes and kind of build more fine ramifications. Same with an elm, um, and and so just by controlling the container, you can really do a lot. And uh, and are there any deciduous trees that you? I mean. I ask this just like curious and totally unknowing that you would withhold water from. I mean, like leaving a trident in the pot for another year. Are you are you having to compensate for that root boundness by watering more? Yeah, uh, not really. I, I haven't found you know when a deciduous species yet that I'm like hey, we got to watch the watering. Right. Um, I have found that. Um, older trees, uh, the the watering is a lot more kind of careful, and and they. When you have a really refined old deciduous tree, if you're overwatering it, they can get weak really fast. Oh, interesting. Okay, so um, so the overwatering causing the problems. Yeah, I, I see more problems with the overwatering. Oh wow! At least from the professional standpoint, uh -huh. I, I think you know, I think as hobbyists, maybe it could work it the other way around. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's really fascinating. Mm. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, deciduous. And are there any species that exist in North America or anywhere that you've been that you're like, I don't see anybody utilizing this, but there is potential here. Or sure. maybe it's not being utilized very much and there's potential here. Yeah, sure. Um, I think red maple, Acer rubrum, is, is a beautiful, beautiful tree that nobody's really playing with. Mm -hmm. um, there are a few you know, native trees that people are playing with, American beech, American hornbeam, um, vine maple. Mm. Um, people have been dabbling in those for years, but I think there's a lot of species on the East Coast. We have a native American styrax. There's a stewardia native to Texas and a stewardia native to the Appalachians. Um, there, there's a lot of untapped potential. Mm -hmm. um, I'm kind of at a crossroads with with build, building and planting my garden, uh, where you know, do I want to spend a lot of time, you know, discovering and, and experimenting with that material, or do I just want to create kind of standard uh, deciduous bonsai as as we know mm -hmm. today? Um, I think I think the latter, but um, I, th I think I think it will take a few generations for us to really you know figure out North American native deciduous. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. Redbud. I mean, it would be amazing. Eastern redbud. Yep. Um, there's, there's so many, there's, there's a huge list. Yeah. Are you, do you have any fascination or interest in broadleaf evergreen or broadleaf species? Not as much as I do the deciduous uh -huh. trees. I, I can get bored really easily. And so I really appreciate that the deciduous, you know, change every season. Uh, they change throughout time really dramatically. Um, Michael has this really beautiful Japanese book where it has, you know, uh, a, a famous bonsai from 50 years ago and then from 20 years ago and then today. And, and, it's interesting to look at the differences between different species. Uh, most of the junipers, you know, look almost identical. Mm -hmm. You know, a Yamadori juniper from 100 years ago, you know, can not change very much. Uh, but deciduous trees, they don't look anything like like what they used to. And mm -hmm. so I, the, the level of change is really exciting to me. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I almost feel like there's like a whole nother... 
you know, in the way that you've caught the passion for deciduous, I almost think there's a whole nother, you've got conifers, you've got deciduous and you have broadleaf evergreens right? and and you have tropicals. I mean, as, right, as right. even though tropicals, I mean, I, I don't know if you could call a tropical broadleaf evergreen. I guess it technically fits inside of that. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a weird little genre nuance there. Right, but I mean, right. the, um, we have this uh, Pieris japonica up, fun. out of a landscape up yeah you know and randy dug it out of somebody's garden long ago gave it to me because he didn't have anywhere to put it yeah. and i planted it and the trunk is just this incredibly rotating twisted contorted right trunk and i really want to play with pierce because the aesthetic of it is going to be so incredibly different yeah, they're beautiful they're the nice like pink foliage yeah. when they're they're budding out it's just gorgeous and the flowers and the yeah. sweet scent i mean yeah. there's like yeah. But you think about olive. I mean, olive's kind of like the predominantly Western explored broadleafed evergreen. Right. There's some wonderful oak species that stay yeah. uh, evergreen over the course of the year. But like when I was in Israel and the whole leucophyllum, I don't know mm-hmm. if you've ever heard or seen leucophyllum. Incredible. And I'm like, what is this tree? And they're like, it's native to Texas. It's native to your country. You don't <laughs> wow. know what it is. And I was just like, no, I'd never seen it. Incredible. Yeah. Twisting yeah. trunk like a twisted prom- pomegranate. Wow. Like um, a real sage green leaf, beautiful bright red flowers. I mean, yeah. it's, al- it's yeah. almost like too uh, verbose, you know, like, right, right. Uh, but but fascinating, fascinating stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to take us several generations to really figure out what we have here. Yeah. And, and it's going to take, you know, not just not just me, but it's going to take, you know, tons of people with a passion for something other than maybe a conifer to really kind of dive in and explore that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm excited to see what people do. Yeah. Yeah. It I should hope be I get to live through some of it. Yeah. So if you like, uh, if you were called upon to, to judge, you know, the national show or, mm-hmm. or an exhibition of that level, and you were like evaluating the trees, cause I think about this all the time mm-hmm. and, uh, and how there's not really a consistency of what, the, what, what, like the opinion around what is a good tree. Right. I think, I think there's a lot of diversity and I think that diversity has to be represented in judging because there's no way to homogenize it mm-hmm. or else you do kind of start to constrict the creative aspect of bonsai. But yeah. if you had to like identify what you would value and what you hope other judges would see if you were really critically analyzing a bonsai, where would your priorities exist? I think your, your rule book, your your judging sheet for the Artisans Cup was really interesting uh, because I think you had a distinction on there, you know, take your personal preference out, whether this tree is designed to look like a bonsai or designed to look like a more wild representation, mm-hmm. you know, try and treat that equally. And I think having a really objective approach is, is kind of where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I tend to view judging kind of more like like a dog show, right? And you you go to Westminster and and you're at the final round and you know you have the 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 the, the breeds from the toy group and, and the mm-hmm. the retrievers, and you know you know they, you have your best from all those groups there and you're judging against the standard. Yeah. So so you have a juniper there and and you know you you're judging, you know, is this juniper a better juniper than this pine is a pine? Yes. Um, yeah. And that gets really challenging. Oh, it's freaking hard, <laughs> it's, it's man. It's tough. Judging is hard. And and I think with deciduous, like it's it's a totally different ballgame because we're I think our judging is Oh, this is an interesting conversation. I think our judging is a lot more critical on deciduous trees because mm-hmm. we have a lot more expectations with a tree that's pot grown, right? Um, it, you, because it was grown from a, a seedling or an air layer or something like that, it's expected to have a good nabari. It's expected to have no scars. It's expected to to uh, have a good taper. And, and I think because the leaves can fall off, you know, we're a lot more harsh. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it's it's a really interesting conversation. So if you went to Europe and you saw some of the some of the European deciduous trees handled mm-hmm. with more deadwood and hollows and maybe even intentionally created deadwood instead of trying to heal and create a scarless trunk and now you have this yeah. imperfection that you're highlighting, how, how how would you handle that or view that? Because definitely the sort of that middle-aged realm of the deciduous tree and the mm-hmm. That pursuit of perfection in the crafted way that the Japanese create the scarless trunk right. sounds like that's kind of where you orient. And what would that be like to judge this other approach? Right, right. Um, with Deadwood, I, I like it if it's natural, uh, but if it's really contrived, then that's where I, I tend sure. to have an issue with yeah. it. And so if someone takes you know a beautiful you know pot-grown Japanese maple and starts putting a lot of gins and sharis on it, then that's where I tend to have more objections than if you have a maybe a collected specimen that has a hollow that you kind of embrace rather than you know try and close yeah yeah um i do fall in the line of i i I think it's harder to create good deciduous trees uh, with without the big scars without the deadwood and and if you're pot growing i think that's kind of where where um where you should line up uh, at least that at least I do in my approach. Uh, and I think the reason is is just logical. Yeah. If, if you look at deciduous trees in the wild, let's say ninety nine percent of them don't have deadwood. Uh, deadwood on a deciduous uh, a plant is a very temporary thing. Yes, it is. Um, it, you have a, a branch that dies somehow. Uh, it rots, it falls off, and it heals over. And ten years later, you kind of never knew it was there. Yeah. And so, if you kind of want to represent, you know, one day in the life of this bonsai or one year in the life of this tree then maybe it's a different story but i'm more interested in kind of the long-term yeah effect yeah and i mean i think it's like it it rots and falls off and heals over or continues to rot right like yeah that that becomes the other that becomes the other like well well what about that scenario but i I mean for me like uh, i think both are incredibly challenging to deal with and incredibly beautiful and um and i definitely see the I see the interest in the challenge of yeah. like, hey, can we do this without messing this thing up over the right, course of its cultivation? Right. Like, can we really do this? Like, there is a merit inside of discipline, Japan, uh, deciduous work that is phenomenal. Right. It's phenomenal to witness, you know, mm-hmm. like when you see it, it's almost witnessing perfection to a degree. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, the Japanese did a really good approach with the collected hornbeams. You know, they uh-huh. did, a lot of those are a lot more kind of gnarly than, you know, the, the maples yeah. or the beech or whatnot. But they they take that gnarliness and still do it in a very kind of exquisite way. Elegant way. Um, it's yeah. done elegantly, it's isn't it? It's very elegant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to deny the aesthetic of the Japanese approach because uh-huh. it, is very, it is very elegant. I, You know, the thing for me, even though... I definitely value it and I appreciate it. And I think you have to be very careful about saying you're not going to pursue it in that way because there's always the potential that that sounds like you're trying to sidestep right. what it takes, you right. know? And then it's like, and and to some to some degree for me, and it could have been, you know, where I studied, all, mm-hmm. all, although I, mean, I think Mr. Kimura does very beautiful, refined coniferous work well. And I think his approach definitely softened uh, mm-hmm. definitively in the transition from Arushabhata-san to, to uh, you know, the other um, senpais above me. When that transition happened, Mr. Kimura's approach really changed uh, yeah. while I was there. So it was like a first 18 months was a really strict discipline style. And it was just a changing of the guard. And his, his approach changed with every major subgroup of apprentices mm. that came through. Mm. Um, so that was, that was fascinating to watch. But... Um, it never felt authentic 
to me, just because in the United States, it seems like the value system around at least the the American mentality doesn't necessarily have that degree of trying to pursue perfection like that. Yeah. You know, it's more like freedom of expression and like right. fuck the box kind of a mentality, which I yeah. don't necessarily always agree with. Yeah. But it, it that is in, inherent and intuitively kind of a, 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 I think, a tangential American thought process. Yeah. You know? Like, don't tell me how to think kind of a thing. Right, right. And I, I think, you know, I, I would hate to walk into a garden and just see a hundred trees that look exactly the same. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I'd love to see, you know, one that maybe has a lot more deadwood or, yeah. or something else. Just because I think variety is really nice and healthy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. it's, I mean, and I, I've been thinking about it a lot lately. You know, what is American culture? Yeah. You know, if you look at American food, like... You can say we're hot dogs and hamburgers, but we're also, you know, Tex-Mex. Yeah. Or we're, you know, pizza or calzones. Barbecue. Or, or it's barbecue. Oh, whoa, whoa. Or it's, or it's, it's I, California rolls. and gravy. I agree. It's California rolls. So I, we kind of take what we like about agree. other cultures and kind of evolve it. We don't have a distinct kind of American focus, which yeah. I think artistically can create a lot of challenges. You know, what is American aesthetics? It's, it's aesthetics of so many other places kind of combined. It's a mutt. Yeah, it's a mutt. But I mean, I think this takes me full circle back to like the discussion of, you know, the, the, what are we trying to accomplish aesthetically? Mm-hmm. Like if, if, you know, Walter's hedge pruning approach is accomplishing what he wants to accomplish aesthetically. Mm. I think it's, I think it's necessary to look at that and say, yeah. okay, you're choosing to execute this technique. You are a very educated uh, individual. I mean, I, like, I really enjoyed the Walter podcast just because listening to him talk, he has a lot to share. And I think yeah. this is where like, he, my, he challenges us, right? Cause we don't definitely, think that way. Definitely challenges us and has a very intelligent way of mm-hmm. supporting his stance. You know yeah, I mean? Like yeah. the, the quest for religion and not visiting the Vatican. Does that mean, <laughs> you know, I was right, just like, right. holy shit, he's yeah. dropping nukes right now. Yeah. You know, but I think like even with Dan Robinson, like coming back from Japan and I had an idea of what what it was to do bonsai and he didn't mm-hmm. do it anything like that. And I think at first I was closed minded, but the more I look at it, I'm, I'm just like, well, what he's trying to show and do is completely different. So how do I yeah. look at that? And, and objectively like learn from that and understand mm-hmm. what Dan's trying to say with this medium that I yeah. say I want to pursue art with, right? you know, and I can't say that he's wrong. I yeah. can't say that he's right, wrong. Right. And in fact, when I stopped saying that there was that he was wrong, I started recognizing like there's some freaking brilliance in that. Yeah, you know? he's, a, he's a great artist. I think so Very too. Very different, and, but great. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, and I think Walter is too. And I think mm-hmm. and I also think the refined model is too. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it so fun because all of a sudden you recognize when you go full circle in the conversation, like uh, it just depends on what each individual is trying to mm-hmm. create and communicate. Yeah. But if we get to this level where there is an intentional gesture towards mm-hmm. trying to create an appearance or put a value system into specific characteristics yeah. that aren't necessarily the same. Right. Now, all of a sudden, knowing that there's that degree of intention, you can look at a piece and say, what is this person trying to do? Right. Like, what is it What is it that they're... And, and what, how do I feel about it, right? I can hate it. Right. But, it, but just the thought process that we're now at a point where it's not like, this is what somebody told me to do, but there are truly people that are doing it. Mm-hmm. Like, I would have to look at one of your trees and I would have to say, Andrew pruned this for a very specific reason. Mm-hmm. I need to understand this aesthetic and what he was trying to do. I'm not just going to look at it and be like, this is a like great it. deciduous <laughs> tree or a bad deciduous. Yeah, yeah. it, it doesn't look like that anymore. Right. 
this is bonsai on a higher level in my mind. Yeah, and I think I think we fall into the trap of in, in bonsai if if it's not our, our approach, we we kind of you know discount it. Sure. And and I used to do a lot of that too, and the more I I do this, and the more I think about bonsai, the more I'm getting away from that. Yes. Yeah. I don't think it's it's not healthy, and I think artistically it really kind of it kind of hampers us. It, yeah. it kind of locks us in and, and doesn't make us think. And yeah. I think that's really, really problematic. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I, I learned a lot. Honestly, Ted Madsen, really spending a lot of time mm. with Ted Madsen. Ted has such a beautiful perspective of bonsai. And I mean, like what he's doing down at the Huntington with mm-hmm. that collection, which is a very intimidating collection to take over from yeah, a very sure. legendary figure, you know? I mean, it's yeah. like, and there's some of that provenance that's being set up at the Japanese gardens now with that collection and you being involved with that. That's cool, yeah, man. Yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to have that be a nice nice home for, for a lot of bonsai in Portland. Yeah. Um, it's such a great venue and, and the exposure that they get, I mean, gosh, a mil- almost a million people a year yeah. like seeing bonsai. I mean, that's I think it's great for the community. Yeah. Uh, our apprentice, our new apprentice, John, um, uh, was exposed to bonsai through that exhibit. And so... No it, kidding. It's, it's like really fun. It worked. Like, yeah, it worked. It like, worked. Yeah, good things are coming out of this. Son so of a gun, it's it been worked. Really fun. The more we can get bonsai out there, I think the better. No doubt. I mean, I think the limitation's always been exposure, right? Right. Uh, because people are drawn to bonsai like a flight of light. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really is. It's a magnetic thing that yeah. it's just this microcosm curiosity connection that we've forgotten or subconsciously didn't realize we weren't actually making you know in our daily lives right it's pretty freaking cool yeah so so are you hoping like when you build this garden Mm -hmm. um are you hoping that you'd be teaching people on site like how does andrew robson move forward as far as far as you've conceptualized to this point yeah i'd love to do what uh, all the bonsai professionals before me do is really cut down my travel and have have people come and study at a garden because i i think it's you know your 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 education just skyrockets when you're in one of these creative environments yep. like what you've set up here you have a really gorgeous uh campus for bonsai almost and yeah. and you know when i'm sure when your students come to bonsai marai and and really get to experience being here you know they're learning at such a higher pace than they are uh when they're at home yeah yeah i mean i think this was like a i think this was like a common um commonly understood aspect of apprenticing Mm -hmm. in Japan too, you know, like um, Fujikawa and I talked about it. There was definitely an ambiance that when you were at Mr. Kimura's, especially, you know, you finish your apprenticeship, you go and try to attempt to be a bonsai professional Mm -hmm. and experience all of that, like drop in level quality. You realize you don't really know as much as you thought you knew. Right, right. Uh, You go back as like, I have to go back obligatorily to, you know, be a senpai. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, in this place, Mm -hmm. my skill level rises. Yeah. You know, like being in that presence of that facility, that that's like, I think what we all aspire to try and create for the people that hopefully we have that impact with. Yeah. And I, I hope, you know, Rakuyo Bonsai, my, my nursery would, will be kind of this hub for deciduous creativity. Yeah. You know, I, I, I want people to be able to come and, you know, see lots of different techniques, see lots of different species and, and see, you know, different stages of development, because I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot more so in, in deciduous because uh, these are long-term investments. They're yeah. not, you know, short-term masterpieces. And, yeah. and so being able to see the process from, you know, cutting all the way through, you know, beautiful finished chochabai uh, is really uh, healthy for people, I think. So are you thinking that you're going to want to 
because when you first start, I mean, obviously you have Homer and you do have, I mean, I've seen you poach, I post, I think like a, a winter hazel or a witch mm-hmm. hazel or something yeah, like I a have plum a kind of hazels. Yeah. And, and when you think about deciduous trees, are you thinking that part of your education is going to be teaching people how to create them and utilize that creation process as your educational backbone? Yeah. That, that just makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love for someone to have a trunk and say, okay, how are we going to evolve the branching on this in the next right. 20 years to where we can take something that's pretty sparse and really build a lot of fine, beautiful branching. Yeah. And so that's, that's kind of my, my goal and my nice. hope for my students. Do you, um, do you, or have you been able to get to some of the other bonsai professionals in the Western United States' facility, like Boone's facility yeah, yeah, or Peter T's or, yep, yep. yeah, there's, there, yeah, and I, I think that's super important just seeing, you know, what other people are doing and it, it's super enlightening even just to come here and, and see the different approaches that are being taken. Um, I think Peter T is doing some really interesting work with uh, deciduous bonsai. Is he? Uh, his his approach is a little bit more in the you know more bonsai style rather than more kind of deciduous natural style. Mm-hmm. But I think he executes that really well. Mm. And, and you you see you know the things that I want to see. I want to see an escape branch you know going three feet off the tree to really you know thicken up a lower branch. You know you, you get to see a lot of the exciting you know building of these deciduous yeah. trees. So that when you see that, that's like you're like yeah yeah I'm like I love it. There yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's it's cool. like deciduous bonsai. Because like I mean the deciduous model is so unflashy. You know, let's say it takes you know, Ebihara from an air layer to a Kokufu winning tree is about 30 years. And so let's say during that 30 years, you know, the first 20 are not very pretty. Um, yeah. I, I can't post a photo of a young Japanese maple on Instagram and get, you know, 3,000 <laughs> likes. It's just like, it's really ugly, dirty, you know, yeah. work. It's, yeah. just, it's not Stump, like when we wire stumpy. up pine yeah. and, and it's just like, you know, can be exquisite after one sitting. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's like a totally different game. And I'm, re- I'm really looking forward to, you know, playing that game. Yeah. That's funny. I mean, you keep you keep bringing up Abihara. I don't know if a lot of people know who Abihara is, but he was like the mad scientist Frankenstein. Yeah, he was like the Kimura of Deciduous. He was the Kimura of Deciduous. I mean, I yeah. think that's a perfect way to describe him. He changed what was thought to be possible. Right. And I, I think that's, uh, I think a lot of his techniques, I don't use all of them. I think a lot of them, uh, I have a lot of thoughts about his techniques, um, but I, I think he's, you know, what he was able to create, he was just like a wizard. Yeah. You know, and and yep. he developed, you know, a lot of techniques that are really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't want to, you know, cut off a big branch and have a you know, have it die back down to the trunk, you just cut it off halfway, let it callous over halfway, and then you cut the other half off. Yeah. And, and so he created all these techniques that are kind of logical, but, you know, nobody had ever done it before. I mean, I think that and um, and really when you talk about somebody that's pushing the boundaries to that degree to even develop some of those, you know, groundbreaking applicable pieces that are inside of the realm of reality for most people, mm-hmm. he really broke outside of that boundary. I right. mean, to be able to graft roots to an apex of a Japanese maple, graft a branch in the middle of the trunk, right. cut out, cut the, out the middle of the trunk, yeah. Perfect, perfectly shaped this dowel form that realigned the xylem yeah, cells, yeah. graft them back to. I mean, and and a lot of the complaints about some of that really radical work is that he's the only one that can keep it alive. But I mean, yeah, I've heard some of them are failing. Some uh-huh. of those, you know, old grafts. So I, I'm yeah. not sure how sustainable they are. But just the fact that he could do it in in the short term and, and have it survive is just like astounding. Yeah, and I mean, it's not even. I think like I, I I think this like comes back to my feeling about the demo. You know, like there are a lot of demos that are super detrimental. And like, mm-hmm. there are a lot of techniques 
techniques that are not going to be sustainable, but to explore the boundaries of the plant material in the way that like, I think Mr. Kimura definitely did with conifers. Mm -hmm. And I think Abihara definitely did with deciduous is just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's really fun to be able to get to explore it. And I I think it's like, we're kind of to the point in American uh, bonsai where we can start to have these niches, Mm -hmm. right? You have enough people coming back from Japan. You have, you know, this like wealth of, you know, talent now that, you know, you can see people starting to, you know, specialize and and do a lot of fun things. And so I'm really looking forward to playing with the deciduous model because I think even traditionally, like I don't even have to do anything crazy. I can just create traditional standard deciduous bonsai like you see in Japan and it will be something new to a lot Uh, of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. And there's levels to the game, right? right? There's levels to any approach. Mm-hmm. To be pursuing any thought process and approach at the highest possible level is is to be doing something phenomenal. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Like, there's nobody really diving headfirst into this deciduous world. I mean, it, it, so so as a dis- passionate deciduous practitioner, when when you think about, like, I want to go deep. I want to talk about this. Like, this is what interests me. This is where my jam is at. What What do you want to talk about? I'm yeah, ready to like, go. I mean, we could have a whole podcast just on uh, hedge pruning technique. We could have a whole podcast on deadwood on deciduous trees. What I think we don't talk about enough is just the long term approach with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's you know, deciduous trees aren't like uh, they're 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 like index funds, right? They're they're slow long term investments. They're your IRAs, your your four hundred one ks. It's not quick money making things on. On the, on the stock market. Right. And, and I, I just don't see this, you know, long-term approach, you know, willing to take one step backward to go two steps forward and just, you know, just slowly build these trees over time. There's a few people in the United States who have done it. I think uh, Ann Spencer, you know, late yeah. uh, Portland artist wow. created some really beautiful trees entirely in a bonsai pot. She mm-hmm. didn't gr- grow them in the ground or, or anything like that, but you know, just there's so much we could, we could talk about. Yeah. And I mean, I think the, the, the marvelous thing about Ann Spencer is, is those trees, I think a lot of them found really good homes too yeah. to perpetuate that. Yeah, uh, I've, I've had the honor of, of getting a few, and it's it's just a, a real treat. You know, I have a, a, one of Masa's trees too, and it's just like having a Portland cool. grown tree is yeah. just, you know really special. Yeah, that's that's definitely cool. I mean, I you know the I, I like the AB Hara discussion from the perspective of delineating sustainable work versus exploratory work. And I think mm-hmm. you really drew that delineation when we first started, which is yeah. saying like, hey, listen, somebody's going to try and explore every native species and spend their time and, and their right. uh, and we energy. we need people doing that. We need people doing that. And it's a part of the deciduous model that isn't necessarily being done to a large degree. Right. And then, you know, there is that desire to create that beautiful aspirational mm-hmm. piece that kind of shows deciduous at its highest level. And yeah. that's really a- another approach that seems like what appeals to you but i think inside of that the teaching process inside of that like you you do have the ability to offer up a a whole new exploration and i guess this kind of takes me to the point in deciduous material that that i'm curious of is like hey inside of beach Mm -hmm. do you like european beach you like japanese beach you like american beach and why you know, like each yeah, of these yeah. species has this conversation. Right, right. And it's, I, I mean, the the wealth of and diversity of species within deciduous is just, you know, crazy. Um, um, beach, is, beach is really fun because, you know, each of these plants uh, are, are totally different kind of, have their totally different, you know, characters mm-hmm. to them. Uh, what's, I love the, what's Homer? 
Homer's a European beach. It is a European. Yeah, and and that's a really good peach uh, beach for most people in North America. I think it's it's really tough. It's really forgiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, Japanese beach can be really really sensitive. Yeah. Um, if you you miss watering on a Japanese beach, it's gonna let you know. Yeah. But uh, on a on a European beach, it it, it will be okay. Yeah. And, and so it's a really tough tough tree. Do you work pomegranate at all? Uh, I don't have a pomegranate. I haven't. I've I've worked on a couple, but mm-hmm. I, I'd love to dive into it more. Yeah, yeah. I I really I've found pomegranate to be really just interesting. I yeah. mean, also forgiving, super durable, incredibly durable. Yeah. Um, but definitely something that that has an opportunity to become really old, really ramified, mm. and really impressive yeah. with beautiful branching from base to tip. Yeah. Kind of a, a vibe. I I find them to be really inspiring. And you see a lot of the twisted pomegranates in Japan mm-hmm. sort of migrating out of that country. Mm. Now, to a large degree in Japan, from what I gathered, at least from, you know, the the stuff that Mr. Kimura shared about deciduous with us, with us, which he did some work. I would say it wasn't his strong suit, but it wasn't like he couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. That a lot of the deciduous species get to an age in a bonsai container where they really do lose their sort of strength, longevity, viability. Yeah. And I, I've always wondered, is that actually true? That's a thing. You that's, think so? That, that's a thing. And and uh, with with those old deciduous trees, you, you have to kind of give them a year off. Uh, you you got to give them a break. And so what we do is, you know, when you have a tree that's really kind of stalling out, you, you put it in a box. Do for, you really? Yeah. You put it in a box, you know, not too much larger than the pot, but you put it in a box for a year or two to kind of let it kind of regain some youthfulness. Uh-huh. Um, but it's definitely a thing. It's kind of like right around the 30, 35, 40 year mark. It just, it, on, on so many different species, I, I see this. I've acquired a lot of trees that, you know, were kind of starting to decline and you put them in a box for, for a year or two and, and they just kind of regain this, this youthfulness. Interesting. So, and I think it's a continual process. I think, you know, every 10 years or so, you're going to have to give it a break for a repotting season. I mean, even th- that same thing exists though with like Japanese black pine and just giving them a year off of decandling and let mm-hmm. them just, let them just be a tree for a year. Right, right. You see that, I, I feel like you see, it was an interesting point that you made about shimpaku and looking at, you know, 50, 60 years of training as a bonsai and it can have mm. a very close proximity to the original design, mm. which I definitely see. But you also see shimpaku suffer catastrophic you know loss yeah, and then yeah. you see the branches put put sort of out to pasture for a while <laughs> right and then right. it's like at some point somebody is inspired or motivated to remake that tree or pay attention to it again yeah it's almost like with a deciduous tree like even putting it into a box is not necessarily relinquishing control necessarily of the design to the same degree that you might let a conifer go because you can right. regain it so easily with a conifer. Right. And it's a lot more challenging with the deciduous. I mean, and I've, I've also heard, and I'm curious, you know, what you think, or if this is, if I'm on the right track, like as you get this finer and finer tertiary branching on a deciduous tree, that branching has a very minimal amount of vascular tissue moving resources and in particular water because as it starts to lignify and get older that thin, mm-hmm. water conductivity becomes relatively inefficient. Like, do you put it in a box, rebuild its strength, and cut it back and start over again? How do you, you handle I think you that? Have to, I think you have to thin them every every. 10 years or so. Uh, and th- it's like that coming one, back yeah, in it's like a that one bit. step backwards to go two steps gotcha. forwards. I, I think you need to, you know, you really plan, plan your, your, you know, top deciduous trees, you know, get them looking good, get them, you know, shown at that point. Mm-hmm. And then you put them in a box. Maybe you make some structural improvements. You, you take off a lot of ramification, not too much, but yeah, but a little you're, bit. You're cutting back. You're, re- you're in a little bit of a rehashing phase. Right. Right. 
and then you know five years later it's it's you know just three percent better yeah and and do you think there is a do you think that the outer boundary of quality and deciduous work has been tapped into like when you look at the japanese model do you look at their deciduous and you say gosh it's going to be tough to usurp that or or really do better than that yeah i think uh you know in taiwan they're actually coming close with deciduous material it's they're using really weird species like uh what is it hibiscus and some some other you know they work with hackberry a lot sure uh they're they're pretty good with their deciduous work um it's, but I, I do think Japan is still the you know epitome of of you know mm-hmm. deciduous material, especially for more temperate species. Yeah, yeah. The elegance, the elegance that is such a major part of like it's almost like this intense effort to make it look effortless. Right, right. Kind of nuanced to yeah, Japanese I aesthetic. That. I mean, it Beautiful. appeals to everybody, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's the that's the. Uh, you know, timeless patina on the woodwork right. of a really beautiful tokonoma just right. and, and alcove. And uh, I, I, it is, it's, it's very seductive. It really is. Yeah. It was, it was always something though. I'll never forget as an apprentice, like walking through Mr. Kamara's nursery. <laughs> I'll never forget this. There's like a, a, you know, a stone walkway from the front to the back and there's like a lawn and there's all of these, uh, yuzu trees kind of along the 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 walkway and there's like a little brick place in his car you know there's like virtually no space for his car to pull in so mm-hmm. it's this narrow little place and there was just a little patch of dirt and whenever it would rain that dirt would turn to mud and we would be you know walking back and forth from the back of the garden to the workshop and the workshop to the back of the garden and i'll never forget i stepped in that mud one time and my footprint was in that mud and mr, <laughs> mr. Carrera came up to me and he said you stepped in the mud <laughs> I said, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that was me. He said, let me see the bottom of your shoe. <laughs> so I oh showed gosh. him the bottom of my shoe and he said, that's your footprint in the mud right there. I said, yes, it is. I'm sorry that I stepped in the mud. He said, an American steps in the mud. You don't see any Japanese footprints in that mud, do you? Oh my god! <laughs> and I was just like, wow, yeah, no, there was it's like, a different way of life. Yeah, there, there was right? a, and, well, and I think like as an American, it just wasn't. It, yeah, just it wasn't thing. like I didn't appreciate, and it wasn't like I wasn't there to pursue the the. Right. But there were just some of those nuances, like, and I think that was a real impact and a rub from having a apprentice in Japan yeah. is developing that kind of like, at least awareness of it, whether it's intuitive mm-hmm. or not, and whether it's a muscle you continue to exercise after you leave your apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. That was what was demanded of you there, and it was good to be aware yeah. that that exists. Yeah, that mentality. Of, yeah, kind of along the same lines. I love in Michael's book post dated. I, I love the little passage where he was you know under underneath a big garden uh maple or something big garden deciduous tree in the fall he was picking up all the leaves uh to clean it because uh-huh. you know shinji's garden is just you know exquisitely immaculate right so he's you know cleaned up every single leaf took a you know a couple hours you know you know get it all you know fine and um shinji came over and, and says oh, good and then he goes and shakes the tree and just a couple leaves fall and that was you know that was just the epitome of beautiful yeah yeah, yeah. Just like, you know, this. Doggone it. Yeah. Shinji Suzuki's good. I, I mean, I feel, I almost feel like, and I don't, I've, I've never talked with Michael about this. I actually asked him if he wanted to come out for a podcast. I think he's going to come do it with us. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, which is exciting. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoy talking to him. I always learn a lot talking to Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but, um, what was I going to say? Doggone it. Uh, I lost it. it. Had something to do with that gun. Oh, I've never talked with Michael about it, but like, Shinji Suzuki's aesthetic really does strike me as being 
influenced, inspired, or potentially even derived from the Cato school of aesthetics and a lot of what you see. Like mm-hmm. I don't I obviously Shunkayan is a is a different facility. Right. And a different mentality, but there are Cato aesthetics that carry mm-hmm. into the subtleties and nuances of the tea ceremony. And I think utilizing the mediums that exist to create an experience and dialogue. Like you're yeah. is the person going to pick up the nuances of the action or not. I, I like that game that exists. Right. Yeah, it's it's magic. It's, because it's it, total it, magic. It's it's it to some degree it's it's like a it is a it's a cultural game. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a knowledge of the natural environment game. Mm-hmm. It's uh I think it's a it's a very cerebral game of education. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of like unspoken banter Mm-hmm. and it is fascinating to yeah, me yeah. that was not a part of my education at mr kimura's i mean mm-hmm. he he was definitely dedicated to exploration and winning shows yeah. uh the commercial the commercial maximization of the art form and mm-hmm. the th- trying to push that maybe sometimes unrealistic boundary that like we yeah. talked about with abihara yeah it's really interesting to see the differences of the different artists there it's mm-hmm. just really fascinating mm-hmm. um and I think it gets, I think it gets broad brushstroke with like a homogenous Japanese style, but there are a lot of style nuances there. Yeah, it's it's subtle, but there's a lot of difference, right? Yeah, and and I think one of the things that I recognized just having been there was like, man, the the impact of the economy as a profession mm. that the kokufu had as a homogenizing standard sort of yeah. setting. There's pros and cons to that it raised the level Mm -hmm. uh but it put the expected pieces in a box and i think what's been interesting as they've gone to the double show Mm -hmm. uh instead of being on a uh, every 10-year basis now on an annual basis Mm. you see a lot more literati you see a lot more elegant trees you see more slender pieces you see pieces that wouldn't have gotten into the steak and potatoes kokfu of the you know 70th exhibition yeah and and i'm I'm sure that just makes a show so much more beautiful it's got to be amazing i haven't yeah. seen it in so long i would really i'm i'm definitely wanting to go back and take a look at it mm. just just to stay aware you yeah. know yeah it's stay important. aware learn continue to continue to move forward yeah yeah for sure are there any countries outside of any time traveling around the nurseries of Japan? Have you been? I, I've, I haven't been to Japan. Oh, yet. you haven't it's, been. It's Are you going list. sometime soon? I, I'm hoping to go for Taikon 10 this cool. year. So it's it's definitely on my list. Nice. Um, Hope you get the fall colors in Kyoto. Yeah, yeah, <sighs> that'll be exquisite. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I was going to go to Kokufu this year, and the the site prep of of my property kind of got in the way of that. So that's okay. Yeah, yeah that's, that's okay. Yeah. That's a good excuse to not it's, go. It's hard to get away once you kind of get established. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, But I, I think it's really important to kind of you know go see where it comes from yeah yeah jennifer price i know jennifer price has spent a lot of time with walter and Mm -hmm. um and i know she's in japan right now it's her first time there yeah and i'm really anxious to hear what she has to say about her her impressions of japan yeah Yeah. and and that was it's always it was interesting to talk to walter i've i've asked him that question multiple times i know that's that's like a an argument that gets lobbed his way right and Um, like do you need to go to japan to make good sushi i don't i don't think so but I think that context could give you another level of another dimension of understanding. No doubt. No doubt. Or at least the awareness of that right, perspective, right? right? right. In, in a really, I think, a lot more firsthand capacity. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Japan. I mean, the world convention that happened um, in Saitama in 2017 was, was a greatest hits of 
historical phenomenal bonsai yeah, sure in a way that i haven't seen that kind of i mean it wasn't it didn't the Tycon 10 is so interesting because of its diversity of approach in the in mm-hmm. the display yeah the coke fu is is sort of it really is still the reference for how most people mimic a show to be set up and presented mm-hmm. as yeah. a more rigid than the Tycon 10 and very formal in its execution as an exhibition. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also would love to see the Gafu 10. I'd love, yeah. Sh- I mean, that's a whole nother realm that nobody's really exploring in North oh, America. Man, show it's Heenis. like, it's, show. like its own world. It's, I'm so glad that we talked about this. Do you air layer? Do you believe in air layering? Do you find it to be a technique working with deciduous yeah. that appeals to you? Like, what is yeah. that? For I think you? I think it's almost essential. Oh. I mean, I mean, look, if you're you're doing if you're starting a deciduous bonsai, mm. you're 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 committing to 30 years minimum for that to be you know a, a show winning tree. Yeah, and. I think, you know, just air layering just saves you so much work. Yes. It's like you get that 360 degree root flare, you know, right from the get go. Yep. Uh, for some species, it's a lot harder than others. You know, maples, you know, you can almost do everything wrong and still get a successful air layer. But beech, stewardia, you know, there are some uh, challenging uh, mm-hmm. plants to air layer. But it, I mean, the, the, it sets you back in the short term, but the amount of time that it saves you, I think is just, you know, incredible yeah now when i'm building my nursery it's like you know i I need to create 500 plants and i i think air layering is the best way to get there but it's you know doing 500 air layers is is a little that's intense challenging so i'm gonna have to come up with some other ways to to create that same result i think we'll have to work a little harder but i think you know both for me and my students i think that's going to really challenge challenge us in a good way i mean it also makes available like turning lemons into lemonade in terms of like flaws inverse tapers and whatnot that become the next buttressing trunk and stuff like exactly it's such a magical tool to maximize material that maybe doesn't have as much value and i think like when you look at conifers the ability to air layer outside of like some very juvenile form of juniper mm-hmm. you know for for grafting or propagation stock or something yeah. like that like it exists but deciduous it, trees you can really take air layering yeah, to can, a whole new level you can maximize it yeah yeah, yeah. It, and and i think you know a lot of the time we air layer these like really tiny things i mean bob bob uh laws uh, has this, you know, apple that he air layered off of his tree. And the thing is like 10 inches in it's diameter. Incredible. It's like this a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah. And, and so um, I think what they do in the Shoheen world a lot is, is you know, they, they build these Shoheen, these beautiful little deciduous Shoheen, you know, not, they build 90% of the tree on a stock plant and then they just air layer it off, put yep. it in a pot and goes in Gafu 10 the next year. Yep. Yep. Um, I mean... It makes sense though, right? I, yeah. it, it really yeah. does. I think, do you, how do you approach the air layering process? Do you use a wire tourniquet? Do you just uh, strip, you know, like what, what's your process? You use rooting hormone on, and are there species specific right, necessities right. for that? Uh, I'm still, I'm still exploring. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, I've done it mostly on Japanese maples, uh, which are pretty bulletproof. I do the ring around rather than the, the wire mm-hmm. to, to make the tourniquet. Uh, I've seen a, uh, uh, um, on more difficult species, I, I've heard that the tourniquet is is more effective than the ring. Um, and what about the ring and the tourniquet, or just the tourniquet? On I've its never own? tried both. Uh huh. Um, I, I I love the swelling that you you know you get a little bit of swelling when you do that tourniquet. Yes, you do. And so I, I I'd love to experiment with that more, but. Uh, I've only done like let's say three, four dozen air layers, and I haven't even you know touched the, the what's possible. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Kimura um, used to, like, as we were approaching the Coke Fu, when you're creating, obviously, the Chuhin three-point displays and stuff, most mm-hmm. of those are going to be conifer-dominant Chuhin pieces he's working with. Right. But he needs the correct orientation, deciduous material mm-hmm. to be the smaller of the two pieces. Yeah. And so we would be working with elms and, uh, you know, Kayaki, Zelkova's, air layering off these portions of these much larger more mature trees right and and one of the interesting techniques that he uh applied when i was there is he just took essentially like a sheet of balsa wood like a really thin wood Mm. um cut a slit cut the exact diameter where the where the Uh piece was air layered kind of flexed the balsa wood fitted around the trunk and created a platform that he then held with wire and then we built a container around it with some chume akadama like some nice fine akadama one sixteenth one eighth yeah and built in i mean it literally three months this this spreading base and this fine little <laughs> yeah. root mass stuck it in the pot and it was in the kokefu that same right, year right. Yeah. it was it was it was pretty freaking yeah, impressive you know pretty magical yeah it's 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 really untapped i think yeah yeah i agree i agree i mean like even as i drive down this road you know the um, apples that you have here yeah, and like exactly the apple i mean in, in the apples that have been painstakingly pruned every year right there's have, some really interesting forms mm-hmm. on those plants just it's, beautiful yeah beautiful yeah. like really beautiful yeah yeah I, i'm looking forward to really playing yeah with, with what air layering can be so i have a student down in san diego who goes out and is air layering um like full-size branches that are that he's he's pruning intentionally growing uh-huh. out some some smaller growth and then air layering wow. uh, branches off of some of the coast live oaks and stuff that exist uh getting Crazy. permission from property owners yeah. and like yeah trying to go pretty impressively is, is he able to keep them hydrated because that i mean that's the challenge with me i drive all around portland i'm like i want to air layer that, yeah. that and that but you know i'm not going to be there every day to yeah. check on it he he is a very unique individual i mean i think he's developed methodologies to uh to try and keep hydration hydration levels higher uh-huh. but he's also willing and crazy enough to go water them every week yeah and so he he just has this um this really inquisitive mind and this uh, wow. he enjoys the challenge of it yeah. and yeah and every time i talk to him like he's having new successes and breakthroughs and stuff and it's like yeah. god this is what is if you're motivated this is what is possible right and then you start thinking like as the landscape around mirai has continued to mature like i've got a shishigashira and i've got a full moon maple up there and stuff and i look at it and the shishigashiro was a, a fairly mistreated maple down mm. in the in the nursery country. Mm-hmm. I brought it and put it in, but some of the branches have some contortion on it that is really interesting and unique. Yeah, because it was kind of mis sort of forgotten about right, in the landscape. Right. Fell over branches, right. phototropically grew up, and yeah. now you've got this interesting movement and stuff wow. like the nursery industry in the Willamette Valley for air layer material is phenomenal. I, I think it I think it can be. Uh, I think the challenge that we're seeing nowadays, mm-hmm. especially with nursery material, is that they're getting so good at what they do that the standardization of of the products that they're creating yeah. is, is creating less, you know, really, you know, quirky things that we would love for bonsai. The recession knocked out a lot of that, didn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I, I I'm friends with Joe Harris and I love I love going out to Isley and, yeah. and chatting with him because their whole operation is just really impressive. They're like the the Mercedes or Cadillac of yeah. Yeah. Of, of, of of nursery material. And and the impressive thing about Joe is he, he heads their entire Japanese maple department. And he told me he has about 700,000 plants, you know, in that neighborhood that mm-hmm. he's responsible for taking care of. And on every one of those trees, they don't make a cut larger than their thumb. 
And that just like blew my mind. They're setting these trees up so well in the early years. And this is what we don't do enough of, I think, in deciduous bonsai yeah. in, in America. Yeah. They're setting these trees up so flawlessly in the early years that it, it, they just kind of create themselves as they get older. <clears throat> and it's a $20,000 Japanese maple. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, like, yeah. A, like right. the full-size specimen. And I right. honestly, like when I go out to Isley's, like I've had the opportunity to go out and hang with Joe a little bit and he yeah. showed me around. He's really kind. I think Joe Harris is a, so underrated and right. underappreciated yeah. for the knowledge and what he has contributed yeah, to Bones in North America. He's, he's guy's great. amazing. Yeah, he's, and, he's, he's awesome. And he can barbecue. But yeah, which I haven't yeah. experienced, but I've heard. That's, yeah. that's a, I think we need to have a, a bonsai event where we get him, oh, him to barbecue I think to barbecue that's an epic us. idea. Yeah. That's amazing. I love yeah. that. But like, I, I mean, I stand there and you look in front, you you stand in front of one of their, you know, big 15, 20 foot specimen trees that they've mm -hmm. been working on for 45 years. And you're like, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I had 20 grand is an arbitrary number, but it's, yeah. it's just like, I, yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, I get it. I've, and I've been I would debating, pay it for that I've if do, I had. I've been debating getting one of those for yeah. my, my garden because they're so impressive and they're so beautiful, <sighs> but they take up so much space. And I have like almost half an acre, not quite. And so I'm going to be a little tight for space as it is. Yeah. But gosh, those are gorgeous. There's some original ones that they have there that were created by Jean Isley, you know, himself. Really? And they were they were upright, you know, just green Japanese maples. And then about 10, 12 feet high, they were grafted with dissectum. And so you have this really beautiful platform that the dissectum, you know, weeping branches can just you know, yeah. fall down on. They're, oh. they're amazing. It is. I mean, but but what a statement piece for your garden to have one yeah. of those. As I thought just... about just keeping one in a crate and being like, this is a, a bonsai niwaki. <laughs> hybrid <laughs> right. I, I mean my beach is kind of almost you know breaking that, that <laughs> right. realm but right. it's encroaching yeah but uh, that'd be pretty epic oh man yeah i i don't even know you know the thing about that is is once you take on ownership of something like that too right. it, it's kind of like okay now you know you just don't it's the funny thing stepping in Niwaki is like you don't just mm -hmm. get to buy it and it stays like that. It's the exact same thing as Bonsai, except right, for right. we're not Niwaki masters. Right, you know? exactly. Yeah. So then it's like, oh, good luck and in, in, in enjoy taking <laughs> care of this pristine <laughs> yeah, Japanese yeah, maple Niwaki. Yeah. It's it's a, a different world. It's isn't super it? intimidating. Yeah. We used to have to maintain the landscape at Mr. Kimura's, nice. and we would be up inside of his Japanese white pine, uh -huh. you know, 35 foot garden trees around his pond, freaking yeah. pinching candles. It was the most obnoxious thing I've ever done wow. it was so ridiculous wow being a japanese gardener i i couldn't imagine when you saw a a niwaki crew go through some of the red pines that hung over the gates and mm. and the the beauty of some of those red pines that you knew had been made mm -hmm. that it wasn't like they went out and collected it like that right, right. this, has been it, this doesn't naturally happen it's no. like bonsai it no just, it doesn't do it on its own and 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 the aesthetic of a good professional uwekia son was mm. just I mean, it was as mind-boggling as any wow. really top-level bonsai professional. Yeah, yeah. It's impressive. The, the macro scale of it and some of the stuff that you see coming out of like Korea mm -hmm. and what they're doing in China. I mean, there's like different aesthetics that apply to it, yeah. but the scale and the level of detail. Right. It's, it's pretty nuts. It's impressive. I've been to China and, and I just walking around some of these nurseries and seeing, you know, these are, you know, Niwaki, but they're in containers. And right. It's just crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Yep. Yeah, un unfathomable. That is, I think that is definitely something. The only thing that even remotely comes close to that in terms of my experience and proximity is when Jerry Morris created the the Ziff property in Aspen, which mm. essentially, you know, he he went was contracted to go figure out how to dig ancient bristlecone and limber pine and mm. Colorado spruce off of a a property that was going to be 
I, I don't know if it was going to be developed or not, but a property that was being sort of facelifted a little bit mm -hmm. and figuring out how to collect these full size bristle cones and limber pines and stuff and then moving them yeah. and then replanting them. I mean, Jerry Morris is like this horticultural genius that people really yeah. don't comprehend the greatness of on the coniferous realm. Mm -hmm. Like the Jerry Morris specialty conifer collection is 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 one of the most comprehensive, wow. like witch's broom genetic mutation specialty mm -hmm. conifer collections in the horticultural industry. Yeah, and and this is a guy that you know found the fin and started collecting Colorado blue spruce, and now it's a now it's a thing. <laughs> now it's an accepted yeah. native North American species yeah. of significant bonsai prominence. Have you ever seen people? This isn't deciduous, but let's go there. Have you ever seen people grafting like azo or or anything to some of our native spruces? I never have, and I've wondered what would it take yeah, to graft. What would azo? that be like? Because I mean, they graft spruce all the time in the nursery industry. They graft spruce all the time. I. I don't honestly know because I mean the the spruce of choice and I and I maybe the only spruce that exists in Japan is the Azo. I don't know. Yeah, I, there's there's the black the Hondo spruce, okay, black spruce. And is this an on Hokkaido then? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, because we have black, white, and red spruce that nobody the red talks spruce about on the East Coast. Is gorgeous, right? Gorgeous. And and I think um, you know there are all of these little like hushed whispers about this spruce can or can't be good because i mean there's another pine in japan called the haimatsu which is basically a higher elevation white pine that mm -hmm. has a little bit more curved needle like a mugo yeah and has the same kind of interesting movement as a mugo pine does from europe mm. and the jap the japanese bonsai community as far as i know when i was there just mm -hmm. did not find it to be attractive or acceptable interesting and and so here's this whole other piece of material that didn't make its way into mainstream bonsai that has existed i'm sure it's probably harder to collect them now you know yeah. because there's so many more protections in place it's interesting to see in the japanese approach you know what they've decided to cultivate and what they haven't. Yeah. I mean, cause there's, there's more different types of maples in Japan. You know, there's, um, there's a snake bark maple in Japan. That's, you know, incredibly beautiful Interesting. that nobody uses for bonsai. And and so I, I, I wish I could go back 400 years and, and, you know, discover what the thought process was. Maybe they did try it and, and it didn't work, but I mean, this is kind of the thing, right? Like when you see where Japanese bonsai is now, one of the things that's interesting to think about is, maybe all of the crazy quote unquote crazy ideas or explorations that were like thinking we're breaking new ground within right maybe they already did it and they're just like hey i think so that, that, like that, that shit doesn't work <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. like i'm sorry yeah. good luck enjoy have fun right that not gonna work but then it's also like but if we're not going to the same place aesthetically yeah then yeah, maybe it doesn't work for that aesthetic but maybe yeah. i don't know i i think about this a lot and just wonder right are we just reinventing the wheel yeah it's in a traditional art, you know, that's, that's a really interesting conversation. Well, because when you look at the old Kokufu books and when you look at some of the old magazines from Japan, mm -hmm. their Yamadori was incredibly wild and free and informal mm -hmm. in the way they were handling it. Yeah. And you saw it almost funneled into this. Highly you, refined. Yeah. Highly refined and in an accepted aesthetic in terms of a proportion a, a slight degree of asymmetrical overall triangular form mm -hmm. you saw it really funneled down into that form and I, I mean i guess i always interpreted it as there is so much cultural implication in japan there's so much history there's so much weight there's such a cultural uh component of not necessarily asking why repeating striving for perfection in your pursuit on a daily shokunin mentality yeah that that it's like 
there you see this creativity was there you see the wildness was there and you kind of see where it went you see the economy of of the kung fu and of the professional model and mm-hmm. and it's just like when did that change and what changed and was this right. just the underdeveloped version or the ignorant version and then they went to this version because of what they found yeah fascinating <laughs> to kind of wonder that you know yeah and it's it kind of seems like the the previous generation of artists in japan you know like the katos the Murata's, um it seems like they were like a different type of artist yeah. to me. You know, they were more like poets yeah. than, than, you know, these commercial uh, artists. It's, it's really interesting to see how that that's changed. I mean, like uh, you do see in the post-World War II era of professionals, right? As, as you saw sort of, uh, you know, for the better or for the worse, you saw a more a, a sort of a more globalized approach enter Japan mm. and the influence and the changes that that kind of had leading to the bubble period in the 80s where mm-hmm. where you're seeing Japanese corporations buy up banks and golf course, I mean, Pebble Beach at one time, you yeah, know, yeah. and and the way it was described to me is there was this saying in Tokyo throughout the bonsai community during the bubble period in Japan, which is you could reach out and catch a uh, $100 bill, right? Like there was wow. just so much money flying around and yeah. the desire to, at bonsai as a status symbol became mm-hmm. such a commodity that that was really what set the expectation and trend for that generation of artists um, mm. that were, you know, starving apprentices or maybe really young at the at the time where Japan went through the super gnarly period, right? Interesting, yeah. And, and when you think about that, it does make sense to see that awareness of that kind of economic growth and the and the prosperity that could be occurring around bonsai, mm-hmm. it would be hard to go back from that. Yeah. And and that's where I, I agree with you. You know, you talk about the Katos or the Yamadas or uh, mm-hmm. any of those really longstanding facilities and nurseries, the Suzuki family mm-hmm. of Daijuin, you know, and some of some of those. And and yeah, it, it was it was a different mentality around bonsai. They were splitting a bowl of rice amongst themselves and apprentices. Yeah. It was a lifestyle. It was a dedication to the tree. It wasn't right, such right. an economically motivated activity. Yeah. yeah, that's special. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you can even see it, though, in terms of the Yamadori, like when you go back to the late 1800s, early 1900s. I'm mm. curious, what is... How did the what was the value of deciduous material versus coniferous material in Japan? Oh man, because I'm guessing there was a huge gap. You know, of Japanese maple of equal quality to like a shimpaku juniper. I, I'm guessing there's a huge difference. I mean, in how they're like, eva- evaluated. Yeah, I mean, I think like one of the interesting things about my apprenticeship is I wasn't included in the business of it. Okay. And I think that's a large discussion for like Kimura apprentices when mm. they finish with Mr. Kimura. They're, 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 they are blood in the water a little bit for shar- for the sharks of the bonsai world until uh-huh. you you take a few slashes and bites until you get educated. Yeah, but we weren't we weren't included in the in the economic discussions. So mm. Mr. Kimura apprentices were a little susceptible when you went out into the yeah. big big bad world and you weren't under the protective wing of yeah. your master. But the way it was explained to me specifically from Mr. Kimura was. Deciduous bonsai takes far longer. Mm-hmm. It's far d- more difficult to transform and make a dramatic change to. Mm-hmm. And the price of it is not nearly as significant as a conifer. So when he looked at the practicality <laughs> of it, he was like, yeah. cool, but maybe not. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I think he really, I think he really enjoyed the radical work and bringing about an immediate change. Right. Um, but having said that, Mr. Kimura did have 
some interesting deciduous techniques that I've found to be extremely applicable and effective mm. um, in terms of being able to explore those ways to bring about radical change in deciduous trees. Uh-huh. Um, how sustainable it was or what the final product of the eventual follow through and refinement and whatnot, I think <clears throat> would be very, would be very different than say the deciduous trees that Mr. Suzuki creates and, mm. and that kind of really refined, elegant beauty mm. that Mr. Kimura is not an, an elegant person. He's a powerful mm. person yeah. and that really yeah. shows through in his work. Right. Yeah. Right. But, Interesting. You know, to, for, to to his business mind, there's no reason to do it. And from his artistic perspective, it wasn't interesting yeah. enough to pursue it. And from so. my business mind, I shouldn't be doing this either. But uh, <laughs> um, I, I got to say, it's it's, uh, <laughs> it's interesting. People want people to, want to people trees, want to know about this because you know there's been a ten year conifer boom. Yeah, where like all of a sudden these collected trees were starting to figure out how to use them and how to make great right. material. And and you recognize there's this level, and then it's like, well. How do we do that with deciduous trees? And it's not to say, I mean, like when you look at Bill Valvanis and the trees mm -hmm. he's created from cutting over the course of his career. Right, right. Um, it, I think like Michael's vine maple on the tower mm -hmm. at, in the Artisan's Cup was one of the most elegant, powerful yeah. compositions in the show. Yeah, I agree. You know, and when you look at, I mean, Harvey Carapella and some of Bill's students that have built, grown and built beautiful mm -hmm. deciduous material. I mean, I think Suthin has created a lot of really interesting and beautiful mm -hmm. deciduous trees over the course of time. And I, <clears throat> you know, I don't want to forget anybody because I know there are right. a lot of Ann Spencer. There's definitely out there. They're right. out there. But it's so disproportionate to the amount of Dennis Voitia. I mean, material. Right. Sure. Dennis Voitia has built some beautiful stuff. Right. Uh, and, and really does have a strong deciduous eye but it is a lopsided distribution now yeah and i think we're going to see that in the shows i think the next 20 years uh, of shows in bonsai in america we're going to see you know totally disproportionate number of of conifers to deciduous just because you, know, you can create a yamadori you can get a tree from randy and, and get it into the national show in in what five six seven years you can't do that with a deciduous piece of material at that same quality level. But you're, you're, you're talking 30, 40 years investment till you really get there. And while there are a few trees from, you know, the people that you just mentioned who have done, you know, really great work, the, the numbers are just not there. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I guess I think this site comes back to you. I'd asked you as a judge, what would you hope other judges appreciated and really like considered mm. in the judging process? This is something where I think in terms of the coniferous model, like, there is a, if you stripped all of the needles off of a conifer and you could look at the same naked exposed uh, yeah, visibility would we, would of Yeah, would we be more harsh with the rules? I and, wonder. Well, and I think like that, that is something that I would really hope over the course of yeah. time becomes a consideration because when you say, listen, you have to be objective, what makes a juniper a good juniper? Right. I would hope that our level will advance beyond seeing the form and saying it's beautiful on this dramatic trunk right. and really looking into the interior. And I mean, I think like, at the trophy last year, there were mm -hmm. some phenomenal coniferous species um, there that I think a lot of big, powerful, show-winning mm. size. And mm -hmm. but when you looked at the inside, it's like it didn't have some of the merits of the mm. uh, of what the other trees had. And I mean, mm -hmm. when when I look at when I look look at the elm, um, uh, Andres. Uh, Andres Inglesius, Andre, Andres Alvarez Inglesius. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting his name. Just phenomenal work on an mm. elm. Just a wonderful Olmus that won a prize. Um, and some of the some of the pieces, the work on the Austrian black pine that won mm. that. Although aesthetically, 
it wasn't my flavor, but you couldn't deny the even distribution of right. Austrian Pinus nigra as a really difficult species, energy mm-hmm. distribution, refinement, and all of the things, yeah, it's you tough. know, the components. Um, and I, I would really hope that we do become more strict with coniferous work and yeah. judging it instead of just taking this impressive deadwood trunk and this canopy that kind of right. caps right. it off to look at the work that's done inside of it because I think that is where the kind of um, discrimination needs to be. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I mean, what would it look like to like, you take a ponderosa pine, for example, and, and try and make that key branch substantially thicker than the rest of the branches on the tree? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's It's a totally kind of different ball game that kind of gets it more into deciduous world yep. Than, yep. than what we're used to with these Yamadori. Yeah, I do agree. I do agree. And one of the interesting things when you start to put black pine onto ponderosa is now you just start accepting that that's a part of it again yeah (laughs) you know it's not just like oh i'm just going to twist a ponderosa pine branch around Mm -hmm. and it's going to be good because it's got this great trunk and i've covered it up with foliage it's like when you'd graft a black pine onto it's like all of a sudden now you're growing branches out thickening them elongating them trying to create proportional design again and it's like oh that almost goes hand in hand with that japanese cultivar of foliage going on it having set or follow or abiding by that standard that's been set and defined, you know? Right, right. It's, it's really interesting dynamics that, mm-hmm. you, that you get with grafting. Yeah, yeah, grafting. Grafting is a whole nother world. Yeah, I Whole nother world. Yep. I mean, I do feel <laughs> like, and like, just like we went down the rabbit hole of air layering, mm-hmm. which I do want to circle back because I have one question yeah. for you, but, yeah, let's circle back. you know, grafting is that, uh, that whole next rabbit hole too. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's more difficult with deciduous because you're, you're going to see the grafts when the leaves come off. Yeah. Um, I, the one exception, I think Ume is kind Ume. of the exception with all the d- deciduous. Yeah. Um, but Ume, you almost essentially have to graft. I, I'm just getting into like the Ume game. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I love Ume, but they, they really do, you know, they don't bud back like, like other trees do. They just, you know, would rather <laughs> throw the branch and grow a new sucker off the trunk than, yep. than, than, you know, keep that old branch. And so it, you kind of have to, to dedicate yourself to grafting in that case. And I mean, I think a lot of people who buy ume as like, uh, the, this grower had an ume, we have no idea what the genetics going back to the genetics again. Right. And then not recognizing that, you know, most of the ume and the kokfu, all of those genetics have been grafted onto a collected trunk and grown mm-hmm. to have that flower display at that dependability yeah. because uh, i mean honestly like most ume don't really dependably flower or flower in that kind of copious quantity right or take to necessarily the techniques that would incite flowering as they would be applied to an obai as a right. variety of ume right. that just historically is going to produce mm-hmm. a really robust pink flowering profusion yeah. you know like yeah. they are they definitely and and that's you know, not every trident maple is going to ramify like, you know, Mr. Takayama's forest at Fuyo Inn. Right, right. For some of the reasons you've cited. But I did want to circle back to air layering just to ask you, if you if you were creating an air layer and you had to just kind of map out like the ideal and even define the ideal time for separation, this mm. timing for separation is a big question. I ask myself about it a lot. I think about the physiology mm-hmm. a lot. Because one thing that I notice in the air layering process, at least on a larger air layer, is that when I separate, I have a year where that tree has to go through kind of just the shitstorm mm. of transitioning from this massive injection of water of this very big vascular tissue to this now root system that's yeah. really only tapped into a minimal amount of water flow in the very beginning. 
Yeah. And if if you had to say like, and I don't know if, how much experience you have with it or if you have a thought about it, but mm-hmm. ideal physiological timing for air layer separation on the deciduous trees you've had success with. Yeah, well, going back to timing, I, I think a lot of people do air layering right around repotting season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that Michael kind of cautioned me against. Mm-hmm. And, and so we do most of our air layering once the leaves have hardened off. As do we. It, As do we. It's, it's it only makes major, sense, right? Right, right. Because then it can put all its focus into that rather than trying to grow and right. grow root. Um, so I think that's really critical. We, we you know, for timing for separation, uh, for most maples, we, we do it the same year. So that October, it comes off uh, to where it still has, you know, five, six weeks to where it can, you know, kind of establish that root system. Mm-hmm. And then it goes in the greenhouse and doesn't freeze and gets protected. Uh, but for something like a beach, I mean, it can be two, three years yeah. of an investment to really get there. And, and so what we do is we mostly just, you know, investigate, making make sure that, that pot, and that's another thing we can talk about. I don't like wrapping the bag around the air layer because mm-hmm. then the roots just come out of that and, you know, go down in that they do, bag. Don't they? Um, yeah. So we, we like to put, you know, fasten a, a little plastic container on there so those roots can at least go out a little bit. Uh, and so we check that container and make sure it's full of roots before we, we really separate it. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely some investigation to decide when when that happens. Uh, if, if, we don't, if we can't do it in the fall, then we just leave it on and, and wait until the following spring or summer or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you, you feel like, and that's I guess that's my question, like do you separate it in the fall or do you make that transition in the spring? Yeah, and I, I haven't done enough of them to really know is is there an advantage to spring versus fall right. or, or whatnot. I, right. I, I am very curious about it. Yeah. But it's going to take, you know, me doing thousands to yep. really be able to tell you tell you that yeah i mean i've just had such and i and i i would admit you know like we did we did the american hornbeam we've done some beach mm-hmm. it has been a multi-year investment whereas yeah. like we did a, a a blue rug juniper clump and that's like it's, it was almost like an automatic <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, like it's yeah. not it's not challenging <laughs> right right uh, but but it, it's it's a lot of work to get the roots to equally mm-hmm you know, radially emerge from an air layer on, yeah. on a lot of the deciduous species. And for sure, and you have to, you really have to put the, the labor forward to get it done correctly. Cause the temptation yeah. is to cut it and deal with it later. And that's right. not the way it goes. Yeah. And that, that's not how you can do anything with deciduous, right. right? Deciduous, I think, you know, it is simple work, but it's, if it's very dedicated work and the, and the speed at which they're growing, you know, really dictates that you know, level of dedication. Um, I think oftentimes people put a deciduous tree in the ground to get it to go faster. And I think while there's a lot of merit to ground growing, if you're putting a, a deciduous tree in the ground and you're going for the things that, you know, I appreciate like a scarless trunk and, and no reverse tapers mm-hmm. and, and few scars, um, you're assuming more work than if it was in a container. Um, just because something's in the ground doesn't mean, you know, you don't pull up every two years and work on the Nabari yeah. or, or that you don't, you know, you know, sit down with a tree multiple times a year and, and thin out, you know, multiplicity, which is creating uh, reverse tapers. And so I think, I think you, there's a lot of room for ground growing with deciduous, but I think mostly the, the way of doing it in the past, you know, just putting it in the ground and forgetting about it, it, it turns them into, you know, almost unusable material. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, the motivation to have big trunks is still very much there. And I, I, yeah. I respect it. I get it. You know, yeah. like it, it definitely, I remember when I first started Bonsai, like the bigger the trunk, the more excited I was about the material. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I think like 
developing an appreciation of of a more slender, simple mm-hmm. form and aesthetic, a softer yeah. form. Is that, that what you're kind of going towards as you progress in your career? Are you appreciating smaller trees, you know, more delicate forms? Or are yeah. you still gung-ho about those more powerful, more chunky, more forms? Yeah, I mean, uh, I definitely think I've learned to see them and appreciate them more. And I have a significantly greater respect for what it takes to cultivate them at the level to maintain mm-hmm. that delicacy. Like mm-hmm. this, when I think about... Ted Matson's Femina Juniper Clump on mm. the same slab of granite for mm. literally 28, 30 years now, and mm. the trunks are still the size of a pencil. Wow. I mean, this is like, this is coniferous work on a level that I don't, he doesn't get enough recognition for mm. what he can do with that kind of detail on those trees mm-hmm. um, that he has. And that's that's something that feels very deciduous in terms of that orientation yeah. of maintenance and management. And he, right. and he intentionally did it too. It's not like he stumbled into it. Mm. Uh, he's been intentionally doing that for a very long time, which is a high, high level. Yeah. Uh, wow. I have learned to appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I also recognize that the reason I studied with Mr. Kimura is because I think I meet his curiosity eye to eye. Mm-hmm. I meet uh, the desire to explore eye to eye. And I probably also met him uh, with my intensity eye mm-hmm. to eye. Although it's not like I was ever yelling at Mr. Commerce. I was taking <laughs> right, 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 the right. punishment, but I was there yeah. hungry for that level yeah. of like demand for excellence. And some of that does translate into a little bit more aggro masculine, mm-hmm. like hyper thick, powerful, big intimidating material i still very much find that to be enjoyable yeah, i love the yeah. challenge i love the physicality mm-hmm. you know i like the engineering i like all that yeah. shit you know all yeah, that kind yeah. of like what i think you know I, a little meat meathead bonsai yeah, kind of yeah and i i love that too what i think is a really interesting dynamic that we don't explore a lot is is you know you can have uh, masculine and feminine trees right we can distinguish them that way but uh what I'm really interested in is, you know, how do you have a thin trunk tree that has a really powerful form mm-hmm. or a really thick trunk tree that has a really kind of delicate form? Yeah. I think those are things that we don't explore very much that, that can be really interesting. I agree with that. And they start to create conundrums that when you approach them, you're like, oh, sh- oh no, what do I do? Like, yeah, there's, yeah, no, yeah. there's not really a whole lot of samples of this <laughs> right. in intermediate oddity out there right. to like uh, recognize what, what can be done with this. I... Mm-hmm. I feel like hawthorn, honestly, hawthorn mm. as a species, which in Japan you see some hawthorn, mm-hmm. but n- not really, right? Yeah. The European versions of the hawthorns. Yeah, they have some beautiful specimens. Ha- Dennis amazing. has a beautiful hawthorn. Dennis? Yeah, yeah Dennis de- has an amazing definitely, hawthorn. Definitely. Um, and, but you see some of these like literati hawthorns with these yeah. cr- just craggly branches yeah, and wonderful yeah. bark. And it's just like, and, it, and it's this, it's this rugged, rugged tree with this delicate little white flower <laughs> right, and right, beautiful right. red berries and yeah and it's just like well that is interesting yeah it's it's kind of special right yeah the ume can do that too ume can do that as well it's, it's, I, the, it's the an black interesting thorn. dynamic you see some of the uh what, the cherry in uh in eastern europe uh, uh, uh oh gosh emerge uh, what is it prunus Mal- malheb yeah Ma- mahalab uh, there Mahal- it is yeah, yeah prunus okay. mahalab some of those just yeah. really unique, uh, yeah. interesting trees. The Carpinus orientalis coming out mm. of 
uh, you know, the Czech and some of those regions. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like they're coming out of not the Czech, but uh, Croatia. Yeah, so Croatia makes... produces some beautiful Yamadori. Incredible, the pistache. Yeah, yeah, oh. gorgeous. I mean, really interesting to see one of those in person. Pistache, particularly as a Mediterranean mm. deciduous form. I mean, mm. like when you walk by them in the central coast of California, they just are dumping garbage on the sidewalk. Yeah, you know, like a pepper tree. Uh, or a pistache, you just have all of this debris. But then seeing them in a bonsai form with this, I, I mean, the the pinnately compound leaf, yeah. And you have this whole new leaf system, wisteria. Yeah, really incredible, interesting, incredible genus, and yeah. maybe maybe underexplored in terms of its refinability. I think so. It's they. I mean, wisteria is really special because it's one of the deciduous trees that can trunk up in a pot like tremendously. Really? Yeah. It's there's there's we have a wisteria in Michael's garden that you know was a, a cutting from a retirement center and in a pot you know it has like a fourteen fifteen inch trunk in only twenty years. No kidding. Uh, there's a Warren Hill uh, wisteria <gasps> down in L. A. Is wait is that the isn't that is that the war does Michael have a Warren Hill wisteria or is, uh, one of his clients does? Okay. And it you know it. It was started as a young thing, and it's you know this really chunky, massive thing grown in a container. I mean, it's how does he how does he prune those compound leaves to incite ramification? Yeah, I read the, the blog post. Yeah, I yeah, have yeah. a lot of people ask me about it. This is not you know in any way my specialty. Right. I've really been curious about how to ramify wisteria. Yeah, you can. Um, I mean, ramification on wisteria starts with the flower buds. So you cut the flower back, and then you have your 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 shoot buds that mm-hmm. will that will then grow. Do you um, let it flower and then cut it back? Let it flower and then cut it back. And you've got the basically at the base of the flower, you've got some smaller lateral opportunities right. for ramification. Right. And those are at the, you know, the the very base of the flower. Mm-hmm. You know, you got about an inch or two inches of of, you know, branch potential. Um, the other way is you get a tendril that grows out of the wisteria, and then that is something you know that has quite a bit of length that you can wire and, and make a branch from. Hmm. So you have the two options. Interesting. And if you have that compound leaf because you have this like singular stem that has multiple opposing leaves on it, mm-hmm. can you come back and prune that? Because I know there was a, yeah, a we, description we, of that in yeah, the blog post. Yeah, we, we, I, we, uh, we defoliate, we partially defoliate wisteria. And so you know, you, you, on the compound leaf, you take it back to two leaflets uh, all over the plant, which gets a lot of light in and then oftentimes that wisteria can produce an entire second or third flush wow uh, in a single season so we i mean we have wisteria some of the more younger vigorous ones they can flower two three times a year no kidding and does that exhaust them or is it it doesn't seem to. I mean, wow. they're, they're just, you know, the, the, the old one that we have, it, it, we, we don't try that with. But the, the young, vigorous ones, you know, they're just gangbusters. Wow. And are you fertilizing aggressively as you're doing that? Yeah, we, we, we uh, fertilize wisteria almost, you know, all, all, all throughout the growing okay, season. Okay, so it's just that uh, you're kind of continually pumping yeah, to get yeah, there. Yeah, after flowering, we just, we really hit them hard. So I cut you off as you were trying to talk about Warren Hill Wisteria down in LA, I think. Yeah, there's a really beautiful specimen down there. But my point with that was, you know, they they can... uh, uh, Trunk up so much in a just in a bonsai pot that I mean they're 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 beautiful trees for people to grow if they want a big trunk really quickly. Mm -hmm. It's a great species for that. Mm -hmm. That's interesting that you a big big trunk really quickly like twenty years. People are like, hey Andrew, I'm thinking more like like three to five. Yeah, and and the sad thing is, and with deciduous, I mean that's just not part of the game. I mean that's I mean that's just not the game we're playing. Yeah. 
not, that's not to say that with you know the first ten years or first five to ten years you, you can't look special. Yeah, I mean because I think the bar is so low with with deciduous bonsai in in North America that you know a, a, a good young deciduous tree still blows people away. Yeah, sure, um, sure. But I, I think we don't think about the long term enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, our bonsai culture is still so young though too. You know, and and also right all the nuances of 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 initial teachings evolution of teachings and thought mm-hmm. processes the exposure to you know right. higher level techniques and awarenesses and yeah i mean honestly like uh like bonsai is young and, and bonsai is not that simple too when you start pursuing it at this highest level like it mm-hmm. does become the more and more you get into it just like anything where you gain proficiency it's like the 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 more you get into it the the more you recognize oh man there's a whole nother yeah. level and a whole nother the, level and yeah. a whole nother level the more you know, the more you don't know, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, I really, um, during the 2017 World Bonsai Convention in Japan, they had like a history hall. Mm. And going back and looking at some of these old photos and just history of the evolution of mm. bonsai in Japan was super inspiring. Yeah. Just based on the fact that in a very short period of time, Japan, when you think about bonsai as it was practiced in the early 1900s, mm-hmm. in 117 years... You know the change of taste, the evolution of mm. technique, the the understanding and the hist- history that was established. Yeah, what was really inspiring and really impressive. Yeah, and at the same time too, I, I've been I've, on my computer. I collect you know old historical photos of bonsai, and I have photos from you know the 1920s or 30s mm-hmm. of Japanese bonsai that you know you see that perfect ginkgo flame style. Yep. Like it, it's it's just as it would be you know 100 years later today. Yep, and you know. I, I think in with the deciduous more so, you look at some of the older work, work in the Kokufu books, you know, the, the 50s and the, the 60s, and there's some really beautiful work back then. Oh, incredible. And, and it hasn't changed, I think, to the degree that it's changed with conifers. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Do you um, do you put any time into ginkgo? I, I love ginkgo. Yeah, it's, it's a really <coughs> fun species. Talk to me about how to ramify ginkgo. I, yeah. I, I'm I'm so curious. I again, this is another yeah. thing that I get asked about a lot, and I I don't have an answer for it. Yeah, you know? we we've experimented defoliating young ones, uh, and that seemed to have some effect. You can't do it more than once a year, but if you have a really young, really vigorous ginkgo, uh, it's something to maybe consider. Mm. Um, but they're 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 slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's one that I think it has potential to be grown in the ground to mm-hmm. to, to you know speed up the time a little bit. Um, there's actually some really impressive uh, uh, specimens that have been uh, field grown in Japan um, that I've seen, uh, but it's it's uh, ramifying ginkgo is a little tough. The the interesting thing I have to say about ginkgo is, you know, the rumor is the ginkgos never heal, right? And uh, we, we're uh, in process of closing about a, a one and a half inch uh, uh, cut on a ginkgo uh, using a special uh, uh, um, cut paste. Mm-hmm. And and what I learned when I was studying with Michael is that you know not all cut pastes are created equally. Yeah, right. e- they each have their own little you know differences in the recipes that make make them up. Uh, there's a really good cut paste that I like called Kirikuchi. It's like an olive green liquid cut paste. Um, not key and all. 
Not Kianol. Not Kianol. So it's, I mean, Kianol is also green. Right. Right. Yeah. This is a, in a little, you know, looks like a little glue bottle. Um, it's an olive green color. Uh, Jonas sells it at Bonsai Tonight. Give okay. Give a shout out. Um, but it's it's a cut paste that we use on things that don't want to callous well, like a Chinese quince, like a chochabai, uh, a ginkgo, anything that's not going to really callous well. You put <clears> this <throat> stuff on it and it's like magic. We think it has maybe gibberellic acid or yeah, something that definitely. helps speed it up. High level of indole, indole right. Acid and, and there's fair warning if you put it on a maple you're going to get like a one inch yeah. you know callus you know shooting off of the trunk so we use it very sparingly but it's a really powerful cut paste and 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 also like it will cause cancer essentially <laughs> right right what we're yeah, saying yeah. Here. probably don't probably don't you know like a lot of the things we use in bonsai is <laughs> right. probably safe to take yes. some precautions yeah. well i mean there's not you know like, in japan like there's no regulations like i've sprayed right. liquid mercury before yeah, uh, yeah as a fungicide it's a tremendous fungicide it's freaking mercury yeah it'll melt down your uh you know your uh, brain synapse firings wow. and yeah. shit like that it's not good yeah joe harris told me a story he was sifting yamagoki moss what they use in the satsuki community and he said like there was some something in that that you know he inhaled and it like darn near killed him and, and i believe it i, mean, it. Like, I believe it man there's some scary stuff out there. i believe it i believe it i mean the i think like Still, the Japanese way is, I think, a high, high dependency on chemical yeah. applications. And I didn't, I had a background in chemical application before I went to Japan. Mm-hmm. And and so after Arushabata had kind of, you know, finished and as he was transitioning, I became the chemical applicator. I was the first person to ever wear a respirator at Mr. Kimura's in terms of chemical application. Wow. They used a rag over their face i mean there'd be dead fish <laughs> wow. in his pond there'd be dead birds after we would spread like yeah it was not good it's yeah, hardcore it's people don't understand yeah like how dependent the japanese community is on chemicals and that's mm-hmm. not to like knock it or anything like right. it's, it's just a different way it's just a different way it's a different way it's a different mentality mm-hmm. and 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 i i definitely did not want my life to look like that yeah yeah <laughs> spraying is it's not fun not fun it not sucks fun. it sucks yeah, it sucks for everybody yeah, it sucks for yeah. the environment it sucks right, for everybody right right and i mean there's some i think there's always that's not to like downplay the fact that sometimes it, yeah, it is it's, what we have to yeah, do yeah what we have to do like but, putting it in a confined environment compromises right. its uh, right. immunity to some degree but yeah we, I, I try to avoid it i've really yeah. really moved away from that, mm. that as a major practice at Mariah for mm-hmm. sure yeah 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 how do, i mean how do you handle spraying at michael's how does that work for you guys is it, it yeah on occasion i mean mostly we if we have a known problem we we treat it prophylactically yeah. um so so we try and stay on top of it that way yeah um what 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 common problems do you see on deciduous trees at least and and maybe this is a, a nationwide thing i'm sure you're learning mm-hmm. about where you go the issues that they encounter yeah it can be totally different yeah what are commonalities for you yeah, uh, we don't see too many problems on the deciduous, which I which is is, is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see shot hole every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll you'll see um, you know different um, you know different leaf diseases, but there there's nothing really catastrophic in our area. The the biggest you diseases see shot hole borers in our area. Shot hole borers. Oh, is oh I thought you a shot hole. I think a fungus. Oh, shot holes a fungus. Yeah, and it creates these like. It looks like the leaf has been shot with like a shotgun shell, essentially. So it creates like these holes in the leaf. What? It's yeah, it's kind of crazy. Oh, I've never heard of this. I thought you were um, talking about a shot hole borer, which is like ravaging deciduous trees in Southern California. No, that's oh this is God. a different thing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, we don't see too many problems. Huh. Uh, uh, no peach leaf curl. You guys don't deal with that at all. Not too much leaf curl. Um, I mean, I think the biggest problem we have here is the uh, you can see phomopsis. Uh, sorry, not phomopsis. Uh, pseudomonia uh, on on some deciduous trees. And so with like Japanese maples, which are more sensitive in our area, we we you know if we make a big cut, we we sterilize it with with hydrogen peroxide or alcohol. So you'll make a big cut, sterilize it, and then paste it. And then paste it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, uh, Randy, you know, growing. Japanese maples in the field just because of pseudomonas yeah. steered away from spring pruning, which I think um, the only, the next time you're going to do it is going to be after the first flush hardens and you open up the trunk to major sunburn, which I think then becomes yeah. a, a catastrophic thing in terms of creating major deadwood. Right, which if it's in a pot and it can go under shade cloth, that's that's one thing, but yeah. that's that's a, the challenge with, with ground growing. Um, I'm thinking about ground growing under shade cloth, which would be kind of interesting. That would be interesting. I, it would just give you the freedom to avoid some of the pitfalls of the Pacific Northwest, certainly. Right. Yeah. Right. And 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 then you know, one thing that was always, I mean, we handled some bokeh, some Canameles japonica mm-hmm. at Mr. Kimura's um, over the course of our time there, and um, you know the the notion of not repotting in the spring, mm. the the susceptibility of nematodes to chojubai to nematodes and some mm-hmm. of the issues that arise like. What is this Canamelis japonica susceptibility to nematode pathogen? Repotting in spring, not a good idea. Is that real? Is that not real? We, uh, we repot most of our chochubai in the spring. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, we, we do sterilize after we repot. So we'll, we'll drench it with zero tall uh-huh. uh, to just to sterilize the root system and help uh, keep down the, on the nematodes. Because of nematode issues? Because of nematode issues. So even in the Pacific Northwest, susceptible to nematode? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, and then they, I, th- there's some relationship. I don't understand it uh, very well, but there's some relationship between the nematode and the gall, the root galls. Right. And, and so, um, you know, we found that, you know, just cutting those away, sterilizing when we were pots, you know, when we cut up, when we cut, you know, the 150 church by the Michael has, we're sterilizing the tools in between each, each tree. And so we find by just, you know, simplifying our, 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 our practices, we're able to keep up on those problems. And sterilizing your tools, are you soaking them in, in zero tall? Uh, we, we, we spray them with alcohol. You spray them just with alcohol? Is, uh, 99% isopropyl. Gotcha. Oh, that's fascinating. And so, I mean, like in Japan, Mr. Kimura would always repot his chojubai in the late summer, early fall. Yeah, and su- summer is another optional time, you know, around June after leaves harden off. You can even defoliate and repot around that time. Mm-hmm. And so and anything that we don't get to in the spring, then we, we do in June. Interesting, um, June. Especially young trees is, is a good idea for that. Yeah, um, but fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of fun. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, uh, I feel like there's this like ever-evolving concept that fall repotting is a good idea. I, I personally don't subscribe to it with conifers because yeah. I think you're so limited. Right. If you get into a, a, a situation that is not what you had anticipated, you have mm-hmm. a, your hands are right. hand, you're handcuffed a little bit at that right. point. Right. Like I understand fall root growth and vascular tissue productivity in the fall is so uh, you know phenomenal, but yeah. man, you're dealing with heat, you're dealing with long daylight length, you're dealing with the <laughs> unknown of a repot, which yeah. oftentimes you have to go farther than you think you're going to go. Right. I, I just don't think it's worth it. I don't think it's worth it either. I, and I've heard that being something practiced in California more than anything that seems to mm. become potentially confusing about bonsai being practiced in the other states in, in North yeah. America. And maybe there's some microclimate things there. Um, yeah, and in Japan they do late <laughs> repotting too, right? During the moons, uh, monsoon season. I mean, uh, like you might. Um, we never re- we never repotted during the monsoon season. We always Mr. Mr. Kimura would do a late August, early September. Mm-hmm. Um, 
potting of five needle pine. That was mm. his. That was his only deviation, and mainly because in Jap- in Japan with the five needle pine, pine is parviflora. To some degree, you get it on Zuisho, but not, they're not nearly as susceptible, probably because they're uh, majority younger and mm-hmm. cultivated trees as opposed to Yamadori. Yeah. But on the Pinus parviflora medumari, which is basically like the terminal bud, turns black and becomes inactive. And it's not by an insect or anything. It's just an odd behavior in the tree, mm-hmm. sort of shedding some of its terminal bud. Mm-hmm. I never really thought about it to a large degree. It was just like, oh, that can happen if we remove the root system. So we'll wait till summer. It produces its spring growth. It's hardened off. Mm -hmm. We're getting right before that vascular flush and we'll repot now. Right. I've seen it be catastrophic. And I've seen the same dedication to it the year after catastrophe. And uh, and I thought that was pretty ballsy. You know, there's like a year where 25, 30 Zuisha white pine died. That's a lot of trees. That's, That's a, a lot, lot of, of nice trees. It's a lot of trees. To yeah. Die. And uh, and next year, just boom, right back to it. Just like, wow. I don't know, last year was an anomaly. Let's keep rocking. And I was like, Foo, wow, Ooh. I couldn't do that. Crazy. Um, but when I start to think about it now, and you think about if you reduce the root mass and you mm-hmm. lose a terminal bud as a result of that or it stagnates, mm-hmm. essentially you, you have impacted the tree in a way that it doesn't feel like it has the root system to support that foliar addition that mm-hmm. it had planned to add yeah. until you took away the you know water conductive tissue. Right. And the amount of, of fungi that white pine leans on in the container compared to mm-hmm. almost any other pine, mm-hmm. not in terms of like black pine can be heavily fungal occupied or, or occupied but it doesn't need that as much white pine has to have it mm-hmm. and so when you do a repot and you strip away that fungi and it loses its expansive water and nutrient uptake capacity you know those buds becoming stagnant made sense to me in a tree that's in a small pot and has way more terminal tips than it realistically would in the natural environment for that space right that was the only that was only deviation from spring gotcha yeah yeah i know like in the the, the satsuki community like there's the the saying that they repot you know after flowering but they have the monsoon season to kind of back up you mm-hmm. know the the aftercare of those plants whereas you know it's yeah. maybe not such a good idea where we don't have that here in, in the continental climates yeah i mean unless you lived in like new mexico or something right, like right. that where monsoon is a real thing yeah. or june gloom in san diego but like I, I mean, even Peter Warren was saying, you know, that was something that they believed in for a long time. Yeah. But that is not necessarily. And I feel like the Satsuki community is consistently changing. Now they put pumice in with their Kanuma as mm-hmm. a broadly apply, applied yeah. practice. They're not wiring nearly as much for right. the longevity of, of Satsuki. Right. It's really interesting to see that continue to change and evolve. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. Damn, we just crushed gosh i feel like we haven't even talked about anything like i feel like there's like so much deciduous one percent thing you were talking about yeah it's like there's so much still you know oh, i want to talk about hornbeam and sheens i want to oh talk gosh. about beach and the trunk flattening out i want to talk yeah. about i there's so many different avenues where we could take this yeah flowering and fruiting we really didn't get into that nope. which is just really God, we should do this again. Yeah. This yeah. is really enjoyable. I look forward to that. Yeah. Thank you for coming out and spending time with us. Yeah. Yeah. I had a and blast. I'm, I'm so uh, pumped with what you're doing. I, and it's really exciting to see the community immediately. Like I'm selfishly, it really does serve our community to have more bonsai professionals here. Yeah, I think so. There's a lot of benefit to you know having a strong community and, and kind of working together and supporting each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and just being inspired by higher levels and different approaches and being able to witness, you know, the intentionality we talked about where it's Mm -hmm. like at some point, 
when somebody is doing something intentionally because they aspire to have a, a specific result and you've got to consider that when you judge that yeah. work or view that work. Yeah. Th this is bonsai on that next level that right. professionals keep pushing professionals. Right. This and, is the, the stuff that we think about at two in the morning when we can't fall asleep. Exactly. <laughs> Before you're on at, you know, some major <laughs> musical performance and you're right. like, I, how do I, how do I get that bud to turn that <laughs> angle or, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very cool, Andrew. Well, um, I wish you all the best in your continued journey, and uh, I'm super pumped that you're uh, going for it, man. I, I support everything you're doing. Good luck. Thank you. This all was right. a treat. Thanks. Cool.